the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Lafferty's going to bring it in. They center and they score. The first shot on goal. Put to the back of the net by Jason Dickinson. Look out, Lafferty, shorthanded, in on a breakaway, shoots and scores. The Blackhawks have had two shots on goal. They've scored on both. Another backdoor tapping allowed by the Blues, and the Chicago Blackhawks have made it 3-0. Over the line, Athanasiu shoots and scores. 4-1 Chicago. Z beats Bennington hard on the blocker's side, and I think we're going to see Thomas Grice at this point, Joe. Yeah, we are. Two of the four goals, nothing you can do about. Fortunately, the Lafferty one sneaks five-hole there in that first period. And that'll do it. Blues give it up to the Chicago Blackhawks on a night where it was a tough night for St. Louis goaltenders and a tough home loss here for the Blues. That's what it sounded like on Saturday night as the Blues lose in St. Louis against the lowly Blackhawks. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Alex, when I was in college, I had a buddy. And... Seemed like every time we went out, he was starting some kind of a ruckus. We'd go out to the Columbia bars. Was this buddy named Brandon? Nope, nope. You knew that I wasn't going to be the one that was starting or finishing any fights. Seemed in like the kind of guy that would like to start it and let somebody else take care nope, of it. Nope, nope, not me. I was the guy that was like, no, no, hey, let, let, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm going <laughs> to buy you a nice <laughs> martini and we'll all be good. We, we don't need to go to Harpo's. I'll take care of their drinks that they just spilled because drinks of you. Drinks on me, <laughs> that's, everyone. That's on me. I got this. It seemed like every night that we went out, he would be starting some kind of a ruckus. And eventually, he got into a fight with his roommate uh, that ended with him getting his jaw sealed shut. He changed his life afterwards. (laughs) But eventually, we all had to come to the realization, like, hey, we can't go out with this dude anymore. This is dark. The reason why is because he has shown us who he is. And every time that we go out with him, we think it's going to be different. And it's not the same story every single time that's who the blues are the blues are my buddy from college so who's gonna uh, get their jaw shut the chicago blackhawks just did it oh they did it wow. they were the final punch that we needed to see thrown literally and figuratively to find out who this team is the blackhawks came into that game 31st in the nhl in the standings they were 31st in scoring and 27th in goals allowed per game They were starting a goalie who was making his NHL debut, who in the AHL, Alex, in the AHL, was giving up more than three goals per game and had a save percentage below 900. He's just the next Martin Berdur. The Blues went one for four on the power play, and the Blackhawks scored as many goals on the Blues power play as the Blues scored on their power play. They had a total of three shots on those power play opportunities. 
They finished with three goals on 32 shots. Again, against that AHL goalie that allowed three goals on average in the AHL. Alex, we know what this team is. This team's not good enough. And that, to me, if I'm Doug Armstrong and I was watching that for my suite up there at Enterprise Center, was everything I needed to see. Everything that I needed to see. I would have already made that determination. But if you were teetering, if you were willing to allow this team to give you, to give themselves a chance before this deadline to convince you that you should not sell off all of the assets that we've been talking about, that was the game that should sway them in the direction of, okay, any and all comers for our our options at the deadline, you can go ahead and start giving us your offers. We're willing to know. Yeah, this team has not been able to achieve four games above 500 at all this season. They've at most been to three games above 500, and it's only happened two other times. But yet they can't get that next one. And I understand they went on a seven-game win streak early in the season, but the inability to get to that mark tells me that this team has reached its ceiling and that's about as far as they can go. You can get Vladdy back who you'll probably see in tomorrow's game against the Buffalo Sabres. You can get Tory crew back into this lineup before the end of the stretch going into the bye week. You're not going to get O'Reilly back, but you can start to get healthier bodies on the ice, but you're still going to get the same product. You're going to get a team that goes out there and beats somebody that they're probably not expected to win. But you're also going to get a team that when they go up against an opponent like the Chicago Blackhawks or the Montreal Canadiens, or guess what? An Arizona Coyotes team that they're going to take on Thursday night. Those are the games that you look at and you say, how were you not ready for this opponent? And that's been the biggest bugaboo of this team this season. The inability to be ready for this opponent, no matter whom they are. And Craig Berube even said it a couple of weeks ago, saying we are not at a point to take a team for granted. Guess what? You took a Chicago Blackhawks team for granted and you didn't show up. And it's frustrating because you probably had your most dominant performance of the season, with the exception of the Edmonton Oilers shutout victory early in the year against Nashville. Yep. And you followed it up with a dud against Chicago. So you're right. If I'm Doug Armstrong, I'm looking up in this press box thinking, this is exactly what I needed to see. Thank you, St. Louis Blues, because now we know where we're going with this. Maybe I decide to keep an Ivan Barbashev if we can get a contract done. Maybe I try and lock up Noel Achari. But I think when I look at my asset management, which JR pointed out in his article today, I would be I would be doing a disservice to St. Louis if I look at my team and say, let's go on a stretch run with the roster I have. Let's hear from some of the key players and key figures from that game on Saturday. Let's start with Ivan Barbashev on his thoughts about how the Blues started that game. It's got to be better, to be honest. Uh, you know, it happens quite a lot when we play uh, against the teams that uh, in the bottom in the league. Uh, happens every single time. And, you know, we just got to be more prepared. Alex, I think that this is going to be a comment that gets a bunch of attention because we always latch on to comments when people say we weren't prepared. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember, this happened once upon a time with the Cardinals. Tommy Edmonds said this thing where he said we need to be better prepared, and he said that they don't game plan well enough, and then everybody immediately went to, oh, Jeff Albert needs to be fired. And then Jeff couldn't handle it and left. Can we just not do that with this? Let's not make more of this than needs to be made. I don't think this is an issue with your coaching staff. It's not. I don't think that the Blues are underprepared going into this game. I think they took the Blackhawks lightly. 
And I don't know why. I don't know how that happens for a team that is right now so far down in the standings. You're a bottom 11 team in the NHL. You're a bottom five team in the Western Conference. How does this happen in a game like that? I can't explain it. The Blues can't explain it. Craig Berube was asked after the game about what he can explain. And he basically said, I don't have answers for you guys. Like, there's nothing more that I can say other than we didn't play well enough and it's got to be better. Here's what else Craig Berube said after the game. It's obviously really disappointing. I thought we started the game off excellent. Really moving the puck well, shooting, getting chances. Made two mistakes that are shouldn't happen, and they're both in our net, and it's 2 nothing. Yeah. So we're fighting uphill the rest of the game, and, um, you know, we just, it wasn't good enough, obviously. They were fighting uphill in that game, and they've been fighting uphill in this entire season. I saw the comments from Braden Shin after the game on Saturday, Alex, and he was talking about how the Blues, like when you look at it since that eight game losing streak, they've been one of the better team in the in, in the NHL. You can expand that onto the entirety of the season other than at that eight game losing streak. And I know that's like other than Bennington's bad games. Other than the eight really? game losing streak. Really, Greg Wyshynski, you're going to take a shot like that? <laughs> Felt like we could just throw that out there. Nice. The Blues are 23-13-3 on the season. It's pretty damn good. That's a 620 points percentage. That would be the equivalent of what the Rangers have been so far this year. Congrats. Wow. That's excellent. That's a Stanley Cup contender. The best team in the NHL. But that eight-game losing streak puts you in such a position that when you go up against teams like the Blackhawks, you just can't lose. And I also heard that uh, in that Barbie cut, he was talking about how the Blues have not played well against these bad teams. They've honestly been okay for the most part. Went back and looked at all of their games against teams that are below 500 this season when it comes to their points percentage. That's Philly, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, San Jose, uh, Chicago, Anaheim, and Columbus. They're combined eight and four after Saturday's loss against those teams. Would you like to be a little better? Sure. But eight and four is not a bad winning percentage against those teams. That is keeping them to roughly their season averages. So you've done okay. The problem is in that eight-game losing streak, you set yourself back so far that you needed to be incredible against these types of opponents. And that's just where they stand right now. That eight-game losing streak, when you look back on the post-mortem of this season, that will be when they died. This team was dead after that eight-game losing streak. Yeah, and it's frustrating, too, as a team because he's right. You look at this and you see one loss to Chicago and say, well, this team's awful. They have not been overall but there's little aspects of every game that you see sneak in what Craig Bruby said you're playing uphill hockey because you make mistakes well how many times this season despite that record of 23 wins if you take that eight game losing streak out every game it feels like we're talking about those little mistakes that lead to the Blues chasing a hockey game yeah you have done well against the top teams or the uh, the bad teams the 500 teams but you know on top of that look at the games that you lost and where you were at because that Montreal Canadiens loss you had an opportunity to leapfrog a couple of teams in the standings and you missed that opportunity you did the same thing against the Chicago Blackhawks because there were multiple teams in the Western Conference and Central Division that lost on Saturday and you missed out on two points to put yourself in the conversation to where you were three points away from the Minnesota Wild for third place it's timely losses and that's where I feel like it's so frustrating and that's where I go to the Ivan Barbashev comment because I said it on post game that night do not take this as oh well the coaching staff doesn't have us ready that's baloney because listen to Craig Berube's comments pre-game post games and practices he says exactly what the team should be doing to win hockey games you see him do it for one but then you don't see him do it for the other what he means by that at least what I was reading between the lines with was 
we as a team need to be more prepared for these types of opponents. A team that's sitting with 32 points that looks like they're tanking, but also a team that had won five of their previous six games and on a two-game win streak. If you're not prepared for that team who sees you a lot, who knows how you play, then you don't deserve to be in those playoff conversations because these are the teams that you're supposed to demolish and Dallas and Winnipeg and Minnesota and Colorado are the teams that you're supposed to fall short of. So I I know that we brought up the wildcard standings a lot this year. It's kind of like being in a really poor league and like the National League, for example, last year with the wildcard standings. And you're talking about a team that's like three games back, but with four game, four teams that they have to jump to be able to get into the wild card. It's kind of where the Blues are at right now. Like technically, they're still in it. We can say, hey, they're only, what is it now? Four points back of a wild card spot. And that's true. They are only four points back right now of that final wild card spot. They're also behind right now, Colorado, Calgary, and Nashville for that final spot. And oh, by the way, they have the same goal differential on the season as the Ottawa Senators, who are the third worst team right now in the Eastern Conference. So like, yes, while technically true, they are in the wild card race. And by the the way, you barely beat Ottawa in that game. The Blues are basically in the same conversation right now as Vancouver. And I don't know if you saw Alex, but Vancouver has made some changes over the weekend. They now have a new head coach. They're likely to sell off all of their assets, especially Bo Horvat. That's, that's the conversation that the blues are in right now, more so than the conversation that Calgary, Colorado and Edmonton are about to be having as we head into the trade deadline coming up in about 15 minutes or so. If the Cardinals were to sign any player currently on the roster to an extension prior to spring training, who would it be? Who would you be targeting? We'll get into that coming up at 1130. Plenty more blues and Cardinals to get in through into throughout the show today. If you guys want to get involved, the Air Comfort Service X line is 314-399-9646. we got a loaded show for you guys before I head on vacation tomorrow. Alex and I will do another show next Monday, and then Alex will go on vacation. And then two weeks <laughs> and from then now, T-Bone's going on vacation. we'll all be no back in studio T-Bone. together. <laughs> BK coming stole up yours next. again. Yeah. It was a good football weekend, and some of us predicted every game correctly. We'll talk about the teams that won and what it means big picture-wise coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Well, facing pressure. Goes over the top, wide open, his chase, and he splits the defenders for the touchdown. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, at, I'm Brandon Kiley. That was the CBS He call. questioned if you were Grant or not there for a second. <laughs> uh, the Bengals Heartful. versus the Bills game. Alex, nice 4-0 weekend for your boy when it came to the picks. Do we really need to do a victory lap after you went sub How'd 300 you on all of your picks this season? How'd you do this weekend on your picks, big guy? Don't worry about that. How many punishments did you suffer this year? More more than I would like to admit. That is the, uh, the unfortunate reality of the situation. Alex, I think the best teams won this weekend. Like when you look back at the the overarching storyline of the divisional round, the Jaguars were better, or excuse me, the Chiefs were better than the Jaguars. The Eagles were a lot better than the Giants. I think that the Bengals had shown us really over the last 10 weeks or so that they've just simply been better than the Buffalo Bills. This team, this Buffalo team is not as good as the team that we saw a year ago. 
And the 49ers, despite the Cowboys playing better on Monday Night Football than I think many expected, the 49ers were simply better than Dallas as well. We got the four best teams that are now moving on to the conference championship game. And so for me, like you look at what is the biggest takeaway from those individual games. I think it's that simple that the better team just simply won all four of those opportunities. Yeah, that's that was my biggest takeaway in this, because, yes, my picks did not go well because I thought other teams were going to keep it close. But common knowledge, you looked at all of these matchups and you said the better teams are going to prevail in this, I mean, it was pretty clear and cut who the better team was with Cincinnati and Buffalo. Uh, even with Cincinnati's offensive line issues, Joe Burrow was able to dismember that defense. Uh, Philadelphia, I don't know why I believed in the Giants. I don't either, man. I can't. I think it was because of Brian Dable, but I also didn't take into consideration how good Nick Sirianni has been with that Philadelphia team, and they dismembered that defense with the Giants and had no offense in that game. The only one that was close if you could call it that with San Francisco and Dallas but even that one San Francisco I thought was the better team from start to finish they just kept it close because Dallas's defense is considerably better than we thought so the takeaway for me after this weekend was you're going to see the best team win a Super Bowl because not one of those four are in this and saying man they probably shouldn't be here they got lucky yeah, and for me, it kind of goes along with that. It was it was the best defenses prevailed over the weekend. I mean, you look at what Cincinnati was able to do to that Buffalo offense. I mean, Josh Allen was never comfortable. He never had a good read on Cincinnati all day long, and, and their defense was great. They were scheming things well against him. You look at the Philadelphia Eagles, and I know that they were going up against a Giants team that really shouldn't have much faith going into that weekend. Got kind of high on them in the wild card round, but they did a really good job of shutting them down. And you take a look at Kansas City. They were able to get some pressure on Lawrence for a big chunk of that game also. And then the 49ers, 49ers defense we've talked about, they're one of the best defenses in the league. And sure, the Cowboys defense was able to slow down that 49ers offense, but it comes back to the conversation of that roster is so deep and so well built that even if the offense struggles, their defense can slow down their opponents. And they did that over the week and did a great job of keeping Dak guessing, causing turnovers. So my overarching theme was just the best defense has helped prevail prevail the best teams forward in the conference championship weekend. I think the best defense has helped, but I, I also think it's about the quarterbacks. Like, you look at the Bengals versus the Buffalo Bills game. The, the quarterback that didn't make the mistakes is the one that won that game. Josh Allen was erratic, man. Like, we've been talking about this for a while, and I know we've got our Bills texters that text in and talk about how I'm a, a Josh Allen hater. I'm not. That's just Donnie. I, I, think Josh is a, I think Josh Allen is a really good player. He's got clear deficiencies that he needs to figure out. And we've seen it in this the two postseason games this year, but we've seen it from him in the past as well. Other than basically that divisional game against the Chiefs, which he was almost perfect in, he just tries to do too much. He will not take the underneath pass. We've seen Patrick Mahomes develop this way, where early on in his career, it was big play or bust. There was not a whole lot of like those efficient 12-play, 65-yard touchdown drives. That, that wasn't something that was in the Chiefs' bag. Most of the time when you saw them go on those drives, it was like three plays, 65 yards, and one of those plays was 50 yards, right? It was explosive, explosive, explosive. But then when they didn't get those, it was really hard for them to consistently move the chains. And that's how I felt on Sunday watching that Buffalo Bills offense. It's like, man, if they don't get an explosive play on a drive, I don't think they can move the ball consistently. And that's just because you're going up against better defenses now that know what you're trying to do. So that was the issue for the Bills offense. Meanwhile, the Buffalo or the Cincinnati Bengals finished with 30 first downs in the game. 
They were just consistently moving the chains. The Chiefs were able to do that. You look yesterday with the the 49ers versus the Cowboys. It's about which quarterback's going to make the big mistakes. And Dak made them. We wondered, can Dak play a mistake-free game? The answer was no. You look at the Giants game. Like Daniel Jones just ain't it, man. He's just not it. He, he's, he's fine. He's like the 17th or 20th best quarterback in the NFL. When you get to those kinds of games, though, you need something better. And Trevor Lawrence was pretty darn good in that game against the Chiefs, but had a big mistake. And that big mistake was enough to be able to cost them. So I, I, as much as it was the defenses that were playing well, I also think it was you saw certain quarterbacks that have been in these moments before a lot of them not named Brock Purdy. Well, they just played mistake free football. That's where I was going to go with this, too. I mean, people are going to hear that and say, yeah, but Brock Purdy's still in this one and found a way to win over Dak Prescott. Yeah, because Brock Purdy kept it simple. Brock Purdy played into the system that is the San Francisco 49ers play, and that is defense is going to win you football games and just make the simple play. And Dak Prescott wasn't just making the simple play. Dak Prescott was always trying to do more on the field, whether it's not trusting your receivers or maybe just feeling like you can take the game on your shoulders and win it, but Brock Purdy never did that. Brock Purdy was simple in terms of get the ball to the playmakers and let them do their work. Yeah, that 49ers offense isn't really built – with Purdy at the helm to be a team that's going to take those deep shots. What they're going to do is they're just going to get the ball out quick and allow their weapons to uh, make have their athletes make the big plays happen with their athleticism. Debo Samuel, just dump the ball off to him, get the ball in Kittle's hands, let him do something. And that's what makes that offense great. And that's why you saw Dallas have some success because they were trying to limit those short plays. They mm-hmm. were jumping a bunch of screens. Anytime uh, McCaffrey would go in motion, they would basically jump on him just to make sure that it wasn't just a quick dump out to him. And that's why they had success. But that's what allows that San Francisco offense to run effectively because they aren't taking those deep shots. They're not forcing the ball downfield. And Purdy's smart. He knows what his uh, his negative assets are. He knows he's not going to be the guy that's going to beat them down the field. His goal, just get it out of my hands quickly, let my guys do the work and go get those big chunk plays. Yeah, I I saw somebody tweet it out over the weekend that the 49ers had the advantage at every single position in that game. Like if you were going 49ers D-line versus Cowboys D-line, you're taking the 49ers. 49ers linebackers versus Cowboys linebackers and so on and so forth. Every positional group. The 49ers were better at every single position other than quarterback. And you could see that. You could see that manifest itself on the field. And the one advantage that the Cowboys had was quarterback. And I didn't feel like Dak Prescott outplayed Brock Purdy yesterday. And that's not to suggest that Brock Purdy was great. He was not. I thought he looked very human in that one. And it's one of the reasons why I'm curious to see how the 49ers will fare when they go up against, in my opinion, a better opponent in the Eagles and an opponent that does have a quarterback that can take advantage of the mistakes that you make defensively. But if Dak Prescott was going to finish the game with 200 yards, touchdown, two picks, I think all of us would have said, then the Cowboys are going to lose. Because their only chance to be able to win that one was Dak Prescott at least playing well. Didn't have to be great, at least had to play well. And he couldn't do it. I think the head coaching scheme came into that also because there was no creativity when they needed it at most. It was the same play every single play, especially when you needed to make that drive at the end of the football game. And I know you didn't have any timeouts and you had like 20-something seconds. Okay, let's talk about that. Can we talk about that final drive? Sure the hell was that it's mike mccarthy ladies and gentlemen and then did you see that mike mccarthy got angry at a photographer and had to like you know push him away i don't want my face on camera mike you're the reason that the dallas cowboys lost that football game i've got some thoughts on this so let's start out earlier in the game 11 minutes left in the fourth quarter at the time the cowboys were down 16 to 9 cowboys have a fourth and eight at the san francisco 25 yard line Brett Maher has already had an extra point blocked, and they clearly did not trust him. Now, he ended up making this field goal, so all's for naught. But at that point in time, 
did you think that they should have gone for it? Fourth and eight from the San Francisco 25-yard line. You've got Maher, who's absolutely been trashed the entire postseason. Yes, I would have gone for it because I had no faith in their kicker. When they ran him out on the field, I texted you guys and went, what are they doing? They're bringing out a kicker with the yips here. They've got to go for this. I, I would have gone for it. I, I was stunned that they ended up bringing the kicking team I out. I think in a game against San Francisco with your offense, I would have gone for a lot in the first. Pretty much every fourth down that would have popped up that's not like me set my own 10-yard sure. line, I would have been going for. And, and listen, is it risky? Absolutely. Because if you don't end up getting that, you're down by seven and you're giving the ball back to San Francisco. That being said, your defense had been performing really well. And you're still only down by seven. It's a one-score game. Whether you kick the field goal there, it's still a one-score game. you got to score a touchdown to be able to win. Or if you don't get that field goal there, you're down by a touchdown. You still need a touchdown to be able to tie or win. So I, I felt like then, in that spot, you should have gone for it. All right. Now the next time around, the next possession for the Cowboys. You're now down 19-12. to 12. You have fourth and 10 from your own 18-yard line. Again... Big spot. I don't know if I'd be going for that one. There's two minutes and five seconds left in the game, though. You have two timeouts remaining. So you got the two-minute warning and two timeouts. I'm going for it there. You know why? My expectation was at that point, you're not getting the ball back if you punt it. But it was on your own 18-yard line. Correct. But you have two minutes left in the game, man. So I think he messed up there as well. And I understand it's it's a fourth and 10, and your offense had not been performing well. What he told us in that spot, Mike McCarthy, I don't trust my offense. That's what he was saying by not going for it in that situation. Um, and they ended up, they shouldn't have gotten the ball back. No. Elijah Mitchell ran out of bounds after that first down run. And if he didn't, the Cowboys never see the ball again. That was a screw up by the 49ers in that spot. And then finally you get to the end of game scenario and Dalton Schultz gets oh. pushed back. Can't let that happen. That wasted 15 seconds for them. Then forgets to put the second foot in bounds. Can't have that happen. Your mind's clearly not in it there. And then you have the final play, which listen, like there's no good play there, but that's not the best one. <laughs> like that is certain lining up Zeke under center playing backyard there are no football. Good plays. That, that was, was Mike McCarthy one. at his <laughs> finest. Let's put our running back at center and watch him get trucked to two seconds left. I say all of that to say this. It's just terrible end of game execution by the Cowboys in every facet of the game. And it starts terrible. with that punt where they call the fair catch at what was it like the six or seven yard line? Yeah. You mm-hmm. have to let that ball bounce and see if it goes in the end zone. You may end up right. getting down at the one, but you can't but just But what's field the that difference ball. between that and the in five more yards in front of you? You're yeah. doing the same thing in that scenario, rolling out hey. and nearly getting a safety if you're Dak Prescott. Just bad coaching and bad execution by the players. You combine those two, it's the same story that we saw a year ago. It's the exact same story. And they man. had a ton of penalties in that game. I don't remember what ended up finishing that, but they definitely had more penalties than what the San Francisco 49ers Seven were. Seven for 50 yards. Yeah. And, and you some look big at ones. San Fran, it was three for 30. So some big ones. I, it, it comes down to execution with McCarthy. And, and to the point on the fourth and 10, I understand punting the ball, saying, okay, let's see if we can get a, ball, get a stop with our defense, get the ball back. The problem is you run the punt team on so late to where you punt it with, I think, what was it, 207 left? Too. Is you've got to get the punt team out there, punt that ball so you can take your timeouts on the front side of the two minute warning. Yep. And Greg Olson brought that up. He goes, I can't believe that they're doing that on the broadcast. It, it shouldn't take that long. You should know, hey, we've got to get it to the line. We've got to punt this football quickly. That way we can burn our timeouts before the two-minute warning hits. And they didn't do that either. Again, they got saved by Mitchell running out of bounds. It's a great point. They Every moment that you could find something to screw up in the final eight minutes of that game, they did. They had every opportunity to be able to win that one, man. I do think that the better team ended up winning. I think the 49ers are better than the Cowboys are. But... The cow. If you're a Cowboys fan today, you've got to be livid with the way that that game ended. Yeah. I'm, 
Still not sure it should cost Mike McCarthy his job. I think it should. I, I would definitely be at least exploring the idea of hiring Sean Payton because I just think he's that much better than than Mike McCarthy is. But, man, you've got to be thinking today, we had a real shot. And I, I don't know that you're going to get a better one, man, because it the cap situation for them is getting tighter and tighter as these years go on. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get to questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up next, though, if you could extend any one Cardinal in spring training, who are you going with? We'll give you our thoughts coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. some certainty as you start to think about that long view but I do think it creates some opportunity for us and um, we're not going to rule out any type of future contract extension talks or anything like that I will tell you we're not engaged in any at the moment we really were just trying to focus on yesterday <clears throat> excuse me and um, we got through it and as we uh, approach spring training or in spring training um, we certainly revisited that was John Mozalock at Cardinals winter warmup talking about the Cardinals rotation and if he's had any contract extension talks with any of the members of that rotation alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. earlier today, Alex, I was reading over on the athletic and Jim Bowden put together the 15 players that he thinks we should be watching for to sign a contract extension prior to opening day. Now I will have a little bit of a spoiler alert here. There were zero Cardinals on the list. The list includes mostly superstars, Shohei Otani oh, was a headliner. Superstars aren't on the Cardinals roster right no, now? Just not superstars with a contract extension necessary. Juan Soto, Shohei, Vlad Guerrero Jr., Kyle Tucker. Yes, superstar Kyle Tucker. Corbin T-Bone. Burns, Oddly Rutschman. Those are the types of players that are on this list. A lot of young guys that are heading into arbitration and then some guys that are heading into the final year of their current contracts. Alex, it does bring us back to the same conversation that we've had, though, which is Cardinals are op- are typically looking for, okay, is there a guy on our roster that we would like to get re-signed? And if so, they like to get these contracts done either in spring training or right before spring training. If you were Mo and you're sitting in your office today and you've pretty much got your offseason behind you at this point, is there anybody in particular that immediately jumps to mind for you where you'd say, let's go ahead and get this done prior to spring training so that way we don't have to worry about it afterwards. I think there's two that jump out to me. One I've said a lot, and it's Jordan Montgomery. I think especially with your pitching side of things and from what we, I forgot who we spoke to last week that said he is essentially probably the best. It was uh, Zimbrowski, the Zips guy. um, Basically said he's a, a really good number two who I would try and lock up. The other one I think I would do is Tommy Edmond. And I know I've brought this up before, too, and people have pushed back saying, don't sign Tommy Edmond. But if you could get Tommy Edmond on a really team-friendly deal for the next five, six years, I think that gives you an answer for something you don't have to worry about. It's pretty clear that you have said our shortstop position is Tommy Edmonds until Mason Wynn is ready. But then beyond that, you have a useful utility guy that you could probably get for less than $15 million per year. You could probably get him somewhere around 10 to 12. And I think that'd be a steal from what he has been and maybe buy out a couple of years of arbitration slash free agency. So he'd be the other one that if I'm Mo, I'd look at and say, let's see if we can get a team friendly deal done with Tommy Edmond. 
the guy for me would be Miles Michaelis because I, I he's a guy that you know because you've had him in your uh, organization since 2018, and you know when he's healthy, he pitches like an all-star, and he's a really good number two, kind of the conversation of Jordan Montgomery where if he's healthy, you know he's going to be a number two for you. He's not an ace, but he's a solid number two for you, and Montgomery, he just hasn't been with the organization as long. I, I think by the end of the year, I'd be willing to have that conversation potentially if he has another really good year like he had when he got here to St. Louis, but Michaelis is the only guy for me. I, like Tommy Emmon, you mentioned him. I... I for whatever reason, I just don't want to lock up Tommy Evan because I think after his two more years of arbitration, when he's done at the end of 2000, what would that be, 25, I believe, I, I think you have his replacement in Brendan Donovan, and at that point, Mason Wynn's ready at shortstop. And and Tommy Evan, though his like war is really good, it's mostly carried by his defense. And I and I know like you'd, you'd go, well, Tanner, yeah, we love his defense. We want to keep him here, of course. Well, I, I don't see the bat that's going to stick with him here. He's a solid 260 hitter, but he doesn't get on base at a solid enough clip for me, so... I don't want to lock up Tommy Edmond because if his defense goes down, so does his value to me. And I don't think his defense is going to go down, but as he ages, it slowly will. So I, I wouldn't lock up him. The only guy I would consider would be Michaelis. I would hear the argument for Jordan Montgomery, but those would be the only two for me. Yeah, I think it's got to be one of those two starters. Th- those would be the guys that I would be looking towards. I don't I don't hate your idea, though, Alex, and I, I, mean, I wouldn't be shocked if that's something that the Cardinals were looking into. Tommy Edmond is 28 years old, so he'll be... Uh, 30 years old at the end of this current deal, maybe you say, you know what, instead of going year to year with this arbitration, let's do a five-year contract with you, Tommy, and it'll be worth... $60 million. Yeah, five years, $60 million-ish, somewhere around there. I would not hate that at all. I mean, if you're Tommy Edmond, that locks you into certainty with the Cardinals. You're in a good situation that you know right now you're the starting shortstop, worst-case scenario by the end of this deal. Even if you're not the starting shortstop for the team, maybe you're more into that super utility role. Well, you're still locked up into a contract, so you don't have to worry about what that means financially for you when it comes to the arbitration. I, he, he's somebody that I would definitely consider. And it gives you time to to slow play Mason Wynn to the major leagues. You don't have to sit there and say, we need you to be our shortstop next season. you got a couple of years to figure it out and then bring you up. And you're only signing him through his age 32 season, so it's not like you're locking him up until he's 35, 36, when his speed is severely going to be in decline. And I know people are going to say, well, yeah, they did that with Paul DeYoung, and look what happened. But you paid Paul DeYoung to be a power hitter. You're paying Tommy Edmond to be exactly what he has been for three consecutive seasons, where he's going to hit the same average, he's going to steal your bases, he's going to give you gold glove defense, and he's going to hit. Like He's going to provide all of that for you. The profile is just so much different. I mean, the swing and miss that right. Paul DeYoung had, there was always inherent risk in that because if there is one little tweak that ends up going awry for Paul DeYoung or there's an injury that takes away some of that power, well, now all of his value is gone to you because now you just have a solid defensive player who swings and misses a lot and doesn't hit for any average whatsoever. And oh, by the way, he was never a particularly good on base guy either. That, that's not a player that you can have in your lineup every day. That becomes now a bench bat with a little bit of pop, and he's coming from the right side, which means there's even less value because there's fewer opportunities for him to come off of the bench. Edmund's a little different. Edmund can play all over the diamond. He's got value defensively in basically all of those spots across the diamond. He's a switch hitter, technically, even though he hits significantly better from the right side than he does for the left side. And his ability to make contact is always going to have value in this league, especially now, whether you think that it's a significant boom or not, the shift might impact a guy like Tommy Edmond at least a little bit because he is on the ground so much more than some of his peers. So I, I would at least consider it. But I go back to the starting pitching, which is what Mo talked about whenever we came into this segment. 
And I think that if I was going to lock up one guy, it would be Miles Michaelis. That that would probably be the one that I'm looking to extend going into the season. I just I don't want to do Miles Michaelis because I'm not going to extend somebody who's going to be 38 at the end of that contract. And but I'm I not doing a long-term deal. I would do a three-year contract. I would rather do a five-year contract with Jordan Montgomery. I just I, I the injury history with Miles Michaelis, and I get the sentiment of he's been around. Pretty similar injury history. I understand it, but I also got a guy who's 31 years old compared to a guy who's going to be 35 years old. And I'm just going to take age for what it is and just it concerns me. Totally fair. Um, Those are the two guys that I would hone in on. And I I would get my analytics department on it and say, hey, which of these guys has a better aging curve model for you for you in the in in those projections? The other thing that might be worth considering there, too, though, is what's the cost going to be? Because Montgomery might be closer to like the twenty one, twenty two million dollars. Maybe Michaelis is closer to like 17. And that over time could become a, a difference that they at least have to consider as well and though he is older i I do like a shorter term deal on a pitcher than i regardless the dollar figure than a longer term deal just because of how we see how pitchers can operate where they can be healthy for five years and then all of a sudden they just fall apart so we we could have seen for the most part the healthy portion of jordan montgomery's career and then by a year two through five he may be spending most of the year on the il so i like those longer or excuse me those shorter term deals than those long-term deals with pitchers because they break a little easier than position players if we've had one question that shows up on our text line more than any other especially as it pertains to the cardinals it is this guys what have you heard on the cardinals play-by-play search who's going to be the replacement for danny mack well we did have a significant update over the weekend from jeff jones it sounds like this might be the call that you're hearing more often than not this upcoming season. High fly. Left center. They're giving up on it because it's, it's gone. That was the voice of Aaron Goldsmith, who was doing Something. radio play-by-play for the Seattle Mariners. According to Jeff Jones, uh, Aaron Goldsmith is a strong front runner. Uh, and they are looking at the contract situation right now for him. They're looking at some of his scheduling hurdles. According to Jeff Jones, quote, the Cardinals are hopeful that an announcement can be made by the end of this month, perhaps as soon as the end of the week. If you're not familiar with Aaron Goldsmith, first of all, we have talked about him both privately off air and a little bit on air as well. I think he was always the guy that made the most sense for this job. He's 39 years old. He was raised in St. Louis, although not originally from here. He grew up as a Cardinals fan. He worked for the uh, Gateway Grizzlies. He's come up in baseball now. Like he's, You can hear the energy in that call. He's very good at his job, and he has a connection to the city of St. Louis. If you look around Major League Baseball, you were trying to find, okay, who is the ideal candidate for the Cardinals if they're going this route? It was always Aaron Goldsmith. So if this ends up being the route that they go, Alex, I I think it made sense from day one. And no pun intended, it's a home run hire. Well, no pun intended because he's got dad jokes. And that's a win in my book if you're going to be a broadcaster in St. Louis. There were three guys that made a lot of sense to me in terms of this uh, opening uh, Goldsmith was one of them. Jeff Levering with the Milwaukee yep. Brewers was another one for a St. Louis guy who I always enjoy. Uh, but he's got a pretty, pretty nice job in uh, Milwaukee right now. Um, and then the other one is Chip Carey. And Chip Carey and Aaron Goldsmith are two different broadcasters because Goldsmith's a little bit younger than Chip Carey. And Goldsmith, I would imagine, if you're St. Louis looking at that hire, you're thinking longevity. So if that's the one, man, that that's a hell, that's a hell of a hire for the Cardinals if they get that done. Yeah, he'll be great. Hearing some of his calls from just when we were listening to audio from when they were Mariners were on their latest run and their first time making the playoffs in 20-some-odd years. The energy he brings to the call, he, he would be a great hire 
hire if, if they were to bring him in. And I agree with you. Levering was another name that came to mind when this first happened, along with Chip Carey. So they're not going to miss out. I think Goldsmith, he's a he's going to be a phenomenal hire if he's the guy that they end up bringing in. Yeah, he's really bleeping good at his job. And I would also add just one little quick fun fact that I learned over the weekend. Didn't know that he worked here. Had no idea that Aaron Goldsmith once upon a time worked at 101. In fact, he was on the board. He was working the board when 101 ESPN originally came on the air. So well, that's fun the fact, case that you should be Cardinals play-by-play little guy. tie-in. Somebody actually texted me over the weekend and said, Aaron Goldsmith having a BK type of come-up over the last decade, huh? Will you tell me who that individual is? Because I dislike that individual. Coming up in about 15 minutes 15 or so, I think <laughs> that we found a natural landing spot. You stick with me, T-Bone. We'll get you where you want to uh, go. Okay, I'm out. Coming up I'm in 15 done. minutes, the natural landing spot for Vladimir Tarasenko might have just opened up. And next, questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line here on 101 ESPN. the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. They are St. Louis. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Hendrickson, that voice you just heard was also Jamie Rivers, who's hanging out with us today. Not literally in studio, but figuratively in studio. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, the natural landing spot for Vladimir Tarasenko might have just opened up. We'll tell you what it is in about 10 minutes. But Alex, let's start with some questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service. Actually, I'll start with this from the 636. Alex, do you believe that either Mikola or Achari will be traded at the deadline? I don't think Achari is going to be traded. I I believe they really like Achari. And if you don't believe that, go back and watch the last couple of games because two of the last three games, Achari's been hit and somebody's dropped the gloves for him. Uh, so I, I think they're going to do everything they can to get Achari back. It's just a matter of does he want to stay in St. Louis? Mikola is an interesting one because they've invested a lot of time into Nico Mikola in terms of being a top four defenseman. He's had his ups and he's had his downs. I also don't know how many teams would be interested in Nico Mikola because let's hypothetically throw the Edmonton Oilers out here who need defensive help. Does Nico Mikola crack their top four for what they already have or the Toronto Maple Leafs? Does he crack their top four from what they already have? He's barely cracking this top four. Man. Yeah, <laughs> a, I mean, when Tori- I, I think if you're trading for Mikola, you're bringing him in as either a third pairing defenseman or a depth move and to in where that you sense, have him if there's injuries. And in that sense, what are you getting for it? So I, I, I maybe maybe he's a part of a package to make some salary work. But I don't think either of those get moved. I, I believe it's the, it's the big three. It's Barbashev, O'Reilly, and Tarasenko. And I'm even skeptical on Barbie after these last couple of games. 
See, I think one of them gets moved. And, and I, I lean towards Mikola, but I think if you have the conversation, I think they have the conversations with Achari during the break. And if they can't come to terms on a contract extension, then they might look to move him. I, but I, I do think Mikola will be moved because I think, you know, I, I don't think you're at a spot where you can be too picky of what you're getting. I think at this point with someone like Mikola, someone offers you, what would you say, third, fourth round pick? I don't think he gets that high. I think you maybe fifth get a round fifth pick. round pick. And I don't. Honestly, I would, I would take it just gaining assets. I mean, if we're retooling the defense in the offseason, Mikola's not a part of that conversation in my opinion so he might be a prospect instead of a pick too maybe yeah, they find somebody that's like hey we think this guy projects to be a sixth defenseman a year from now yeah i so, can see the blue saying we'll just we'll take the low upside prospect who we think mm-hmm. has a pretty good chance to be an nhl player on a cost controlled contract and we'll go ahead and work our way around this i, I could see something like that for nico mikola i'm i'm with you tanner i would mikola go for it hockey uh, puck sure somebody want josh levo you're gonna give us a a seventh round or whatever a, a sixth round draft pick go ahead go ahead and take josh levo off of our hands even though I've, I've liked what he's brought at times this season nola chari ivan Barbashev. if you can't get a contract extension with the chari done yeah oh and and then go ahead and throw in any of the other ufas as well i i would be willing to sell basically everybody at the trade deadline at this point there's who would you not l- let me ask this another way if you got a good enough offer who would you not trade from this current roster like, I'm not trading Thomas. I'm not trading Kairou. I'm not trading Buchnevich. I'm not trading Shin. I don't think I'm trading Saad either. I think I would throw Saad. And I would, I'm not trading Bennington. That's fair. Yeah. And I, in terms of prospects, I'm not trading. I'm talking about on the oh, NHL on the, roster okay. currently. Okay. Yeah, I think that would I'm be pro- it. I'm not trading neighbors. Yeah. Because there's right. just not anything realistic yeah, that but I would Yeah, you said a up... good enough offer. If I could get something that's going to help me more Let's next say season. A, a reasonable offer that we would expect. Nobody's going to try to trade for Jake Mabers. I, I really don't Maybe think that's an offseason. I deal. really don't think I'm trading Nolachari. Unless it blows me away. I'm going to do everything in my power to bring him back next year. I, He's my third line center next I year. I yeah. I, I think another name I'll throw in here, and it's the only defenseman that's been playing well. I, I don't think I would trade Callie Rosen. I, I think I want to see. <laughs> oh, good for. I think I want to see what there? he is. I, By I the way, so. Callie wasn't in the top six uh, earlier today. Oh. Tori Krug was. So Callie got the boot. I trade him for anything. I, I, I would seriously hold on to Rosen just to see what he is moving yeah, forward as a part of this retool of the defense. You're going to, I mean, you're going to need something on defense uh, to build around. And I'm not saying Callie Rosen is a top four for you, but you know, he can play there. Uh, and at best is a b- uh, bottom pair defenseman. Did you see Krug was in the third pairing with Tucker? Welcome to power play. You're coming back from an injury. We need you on the power play, your power play. And that's about it. Wow. If he plays tomorrow, it wouldn't surprise me if he plays 12 minutes. He'll be in that role that they had with Perunovic yep. last postseason. Well, and I mean, it's not—it's not from his play. It's also from like you were injured and you were going to sure. slow play this. But we really need you on the power play. All right, uh, final question here from the six three six guys. There's a rematch coming up this weekend between the Chiefs and the Bengals. Oh, I can't wait to take a picture of BK. I'm not gonna be there for that. I've been game. working on my smile. What'd you say? You're not gonna be there for that game? I'm not gonna be there for that. Why game. is that? game this year. Why, why won't you be there for it? I get there early. Aren't I'm you committed the, to the station to be there all day? Championship bash. Aren't you committed to a be there? A real champion would hang around. It's true. Hey. Want to talk about what happened when you hung around last year? Hey, stick with you us. Talk? You want to talk about that? Stick with us, BK. We'll get stick. you where you want to go. <laughs> uh, the rematch is on Sunday. Who are you rooting for, and who do you think comes out on top? I'm rooting for Cincinnati. I'm rooting for Cincinnati. A couple of reasons. Most one, I want to see leaving. him depressed, and two, oh, he's in, apparently um, he's not even going to be there. I got a couple of bets on them, too. Makes me root for him more. Maybe I'll be there. Oh, man, I, 
I can't wait to recreate I'm, that picture. I got I, some I bets going for Cincinnati to the Super Bowl, though. Uh, so I'm rooting for them to go all the I, way. I'm obviously rooting for the Chiefs. What does, that mean? what does that mean, obviously? I'm picking the Bengals. I think they're the better team. I'm actually surprised that the, the Chiefs are favored in this game. I don't think they should be. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, well, I'm not rooting for the Chiefs. I'm rooting for the Bengals. But I do think they're going to be the team that wins. I, I just think when you take away some of that mobility from Mahomes with that sprained ankle, it's a difference maker. And when you get a good team that's got a solid defense in Cincinnati and they were able to shut him down in the second half of last year's game, I think they're going to be able to scheme things up. I think they don't have to worry about him scrambling. It makes it easier on him. So I, I like the Cincinnati Bengals. I really want Cincinnati-Philly Super Bowl. That is about as entertaining as you can ask for. I really want that as a Super Bowl. I think Philly versus either of those teams would be a really fun matchup. Man. San Francisco is just a little bit different. A little different of an animal because of the Brock Purdy. Yeah, I've had enough of you, Brock. It was fun Side while effect. it lasted, but this narrative is over. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're getting into in or out. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. If you guys have a scenario, we will tell you if we are in or out coming up in 15 minutes. But next, the natural landing spot for Vladimir Tarasenko just opened up, in my opinion, and there's a specific player that's likely to be traded before the deadline. We think that he's going to be able to set the market for Ryan O'Reilly. We'll tell you who that is next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tarasenko is a tough one to figure. I mean, like... Honestly, I don't think he's had the greatest of seasons. I know statistically it's not been terrible, but but I, I just feel from an impact standpoint, he's not necess- he's not been where he was last year. O'Reilly's the guy that that you want to trade. That was Greg Wyshynski here with us a couple of weeks ago talking about Vladimir Tarasenko, Ryan O'Reilly, what their value could be at the trade deadline. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, I think over the weekend, we all had the same thought. The Blues losing to the Blackhawks signifies everything that we've been saying previously, and that is this team's just not a contender. It's not somebody that you're going to have to worry about as we get closer to the deadline, being a buyer or anything of the sort. No, this is a seller. They should be a seller. They always have been a seller ever since that eight-game losing streak. And now it becomes a matter of finding a suitor, specifically for Vladimir Tarasenko and Ryan O'Reilly. And over the weekend, I think we found one. The Carolina Hurricanes, Alex, are in first place in the Metro right now. They have 66 points in 46 games. Their record at home is unbelievable. 14-5-2, and their record on the road is unbelievable. 15-4-6. They're a fantastic hockey team so far this year. However, they just lost uh, Pacioretty to a torn Achilles over the weekend. So he's going to be out for at least the rest of the season and could be out even more long-term than that. Alex, when you look at them and you look at this need for a scoring punch for that team, it, it feels to me like Vladimir Tarasenko is the obvious answer. You throw him into that lineup, and I know there's some questions about how he would fit into a Rod Brindamore system, and there were questions about how he would fit into a Craig Berube system as well. That seemed to work out pretty well when they won the Stanley Cup together. Is this the natural landing spot? We've been hearing about them seemingly since the day that Vladimir Tarasenko requested that trade. Yeah, it's one of them, um, especially with this Pacioretty news, because now there is a severe deficit in terms of goal scoring because they were kind of banking on um, Pacioretty to be that goal scorer for them throughout the season when he returned into Mm -hmm. the postseason. And now you just don't know. He might not be playing in the postseason because if I remember Achilles injury with Jaden Schwartz had one or it was he's out for the year. Yeah, he's he's done. He may be back for like a 
Stanley Cup final if you get there, but I don't think that's going to be possible. Yeah, I mean, this is at a minimum six-month injury typically. So I, I, I think that Vladdy would agree to go play there, and I'm, I'm only speaking for him because it's a contender and it's a competitive team, and really you want to set your stock for free agency. I, I, there are other teams that make more sense, like the New York Rangers make a lot of sense for a Vladimir Tarasenko match. Um, but this would be the one that if they came calling, I'm sure Doug would look at it, especially look, Carolina's got a first round pick in this year's draft. They've got a couple of players that would make sense for the blues to possibly acquire. Uh, I know it was rumored in the off season of a trade like this, that Martin Natchez would be one of them. That's not going to happen now because he's playing probably the best on that team, but you know, they got a couple of young defensemen you could look at. They've got a couple of players in the minors. But this one, I this one and the Rangers are the two teams that I would say keep an eye on um, in terms of a Vladimir Tarasenko suitor when it comes to March third. Yeah, I, I think Carolina makes a ton of sense, especially now because you've got the patch ready that's out. You've got that missing and goal scoring punch. They have been connected to him before, and I, I do think Vladdy would want to go there. I mean, you're just going there for a rental. If you don't like it there, you can end up walking away in free agency and going to New York to, to the Rangers if you wanted to be there. So I think it makes a ton of sense. And if, if he said, oh, I want to be in New York, I think Army could tell him, look, we're not getting the offer we want from New York. So you can either go to a contender in Carolina or you can sit here for the rest of the year in which we're out of the playoff race. And, oh, by the way, I just traded Ryan O'Reilly. So I think Carolina makes a ton of sense. I, I feel like they are just that natural landing spot to where, like, in a month's time, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we saw that one coming the moment Pacioretty got hurt. Well, and you can look at their team, too. They got a lot of centers. They got a couple of wingers. They, mm-hmm. They're they short on the right side, which— Yeah, they need—this is why yeah. we've been saying it from day one. Like, they're the team that makes the most sense because they they just need some sort of lethal threat to score. That's that's what they're missing. They're outstanding defensively. They've got the goal suppression, and they've got some guys that are like, they kind of have what the Blues used to have when it comes to just, hey, we've, we've got a lot of guys that can score, but we don't have any one player that's a real, at any point, game-changing threat. And that's what Vladimir Tarasenko, they would be bringing him in to be. They've also got the defenders to be able to make up for his his liability of what he brings to the ice defensively. He They'd be fine there. Um, I would be curious to see what they would give up in return. They, like you said, they've got that first round pick. They also have the cap space, and this is an important factor going into this trade deadline. They have $3.1 million in LTIR available to them now. Vladimir Tarasenko is going to count for roughly $2 million against the cap if the Blues end up eating about 50% of the salary for wherever he decides to go. Uh, so they, they could take it on. New York is is close. They've got about $1.5 million, so they would have to send something back, but they could figure that out. Um, that, that'll be interesting to see what the Blues are able to get in return. It is nice to know, though, that there is a team that has a need for Vladdy, that has the cap space to take on a contract like Vladimir Tarasenko's, and that seems to be a natural fit for him. So even if the Rangers don't end up being interested, even if there's not another team that he would want to go to uh, that ends up getting in some kind of a bidding war, you've at least got one that is out there as, as a natural landing spot. The other player that we've brought up a lot is Ryan O'Reilly as a potential trade deadline, um, significant asset haul in return. Alex, over the weekend, the Vancouver Canucks made the change official that they're going to be going to Rick Tockett as their new head coach. They fired Bruce Boudreaux. And it sure sounds like they are likely to trade Bo Horvat going into the trade deadline. Alex, Bo Horvat is a different player than Ryan O'Reilly. He's 27 years old and he's having a career year. He's got 30 goals, 50 points in the first 46 games of the season for the Vancouver Canucks. He's been outstanding for them. Is this the guy that is going to set the market 
for the Blues when it comes to what a centerman can get in return at the deadline? Yes, because he's going to be that first centerman off the board. But I also think he's going to be a little bit more expensive than Ryan O'Reilly because... One, the goal scoring. I mean, you can't second guess a guy who's got 30 on the season who could possibly end with 50 goals this year. And two, uh, he's going to be, I would imagine, exclusive negotiating rights with the team of like, hey, we want to get a contract extension with you while we make this trade. Whereas Ryan O'Reilly, I can see as a pure rental of bringing him in and saying, all right, we've got O'Reilly for the playoff push. But with Ryan O'Reilly, you're also acquiring somebody who has a lot of recent playoff experience and success compared to Bo Horvat, who hasn't been in the playoffs since the bubble, and he had a lot of success that season. So I think you're going to see very similar returns on these two players, but I believe Bo Horvat's going to be more expensive than O'Reilly. I think the starting point for both of these is going to be a first-round pick. You're going to get a really good prospect in return if you're Vancouver, and you might get a good prospect in return for Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, I think he's going to set the market for Ryan O'Reilly, and I think it could also end up not only just setting the market, but it could get closer, because I agree, I think Horvath's going to cost more in terms of trade assets, but I think it may end up driving up O'Reilly's price even more because teams are going to get desperate and go, oh crap, we missed out on bro, bro, bro. we missed out on Bo Horvat. Bro Horvat. Yeah, his bro brother. Horvat. Yeah, they missed out on Bo Horvat, and they're going to say, okay, well, we need to go to the next best thing, and it drives up the bargain, it drives up the price for Ryan O'Reilly, if it's not Jonathan Taze, and Taze is going to cost a lot more because he's got a massive cap hit, so I do think that it's going to set the market, and I think Ryan O'Reilly will cost less than what Bo Horvat is, but it wouldn't shock me if it gets somewhat closer to that deal just because teams are going to get a little bit more desperate as you get closer to the deadline. Yeah, I think it could be similar. You guys remember at the deadline for the Cardinals, or for Major League Baseball really, uh, when Luis Casillo was like the clear-cut number one starter that was available, and he ends up going to the Mariners for a massive haul. And then it was like Tyler Malley is the top guy that is available, and Tyler Malley is a good good pitcher. He's not great, but he's pretty good. And he ended up getting a, a decent haul as well for the Minnesota Twins. Now he did have the extra year of control, but I, I think it could be similar to that where it's like, okay, this is the first piece that has to come off the chessboard, and then O'Reilly becomes the one that is most sought after by these other teams that are contenders. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, there was a trade in Major League Baseball right as we finished the show on Friday. I do think that it makes me think a little bit more about one of the Cardinals in particular and his value to the team long term. We'll talk about that, tell you who it is coming up in about 15 minutes. In or out, the Air Comfort Service X line is 314-399-9646. If you guys have a scenario, we'll tell you if we are in or out coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with BK and Ferrario. Three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line to get involved for in or out. You give us a scenario. We will tell you if we are in or out. Let's start with this one from the three one four guys in or out. The Cardinals will lose in the wild card round once again in 2023, considering the only significant acquisition they made this offseason was Wilson Contreras. Damn. Happy Monday to yeah, you too. Say, somebody started their week off. Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. I'm going to say I'm out on this because I think now that they have Wilson Contreras, they got another playoff performer. I think trade deadline 
is going to be an aggressive one for this team. And if they stay healthy, which that's the biggest key in this, I think their pitching staff can actually get them past the wild card. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm out on this. I think they actually go beyond that this year. I'm going to say I'm out on this too, but I'm not as confident in it as you are. I, uh, oh, I'm not confident. I'm scared I, to hell so that I said that. I was, I was just trying to run. I'm just trying to run through like what I think the playoff field is going to be right now in my head. I think the Cardinals are definitely number three in the NL. They're going to be playing in the wild card round. They're going to win the division. Just comes down to who do I think they're playing in the wild card round? I honestly think it might be the LA Dodgers. And oh, like that's I know an that'll, win that'll scare you heard everybody. BK I know, but I know that'll scare everybody. Um, but I, I think I'm going to say I'm in on this. I, mean, it's, I feel like we kind of know what the playoff field's going to be already for the most yeah. part. Braves and Padres will have the bye. Yeah. Braves, Mets, Phillies, Cardinals, Dodgers, Padres, and then pick one other team. Who do you think is going to be the quote-unquote surprise this year? That's, that's As long the as they spot. don't face the Mets, I think they'll be fine. Yeah. Because that one-two punch I'll, of Verlander Scherzer, you're not winning that wild card series. I'll say I'm in on it because I think it'll be just like last year where they w- came in as a three, they faced the six, and on paper, I still think this on paper, they were the better team. I think they're going to face just, the Phillies again. Just comes down to they they play. I think it's going to be the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers record's going to be worse than the Phillies. Um, I, I'll say they... I'm in on this, but they should be building. They should be, and this is where it comes down to your, your point on the trade deadline. I don't think they'll be that aggressive. They should be building, trying to avoid the wild card round and take away some of the chance in a best of three series and try and get that by to get to the best of five. But I don't think they're going to do that. I think they'll be in the wild card round, and I'll say they win this year. Yeah, I, I think they get to the NLCS. <laughs> All right. Someone's a little too optimistic. I think you've got a top. He's going to Disney World. It makes sense. I think you've got a top three offense in the National League. I think you have arguably the best offense in the National League. I think they're going to be aggressive at the trade deadline. Get yourself another starter. Throw into this mix. Tyler Malley. Yeah, somebody like that. And then. God. All right, now. Did you factor in that Goldie and Arnado aren't going to hit in the postseason series? No, of course not. Oh, okay. Can't, yeah, because can't they, that way. they got past experience of uh, just demolishing the ball in that postseason. I think they get to the NLCS. I'm once again going to be the most optimistic on the Cardinals going All right. Well, year. I was going to say NLDS and then losing five, but that's fine. Uh, from the 636, guys, in or out, the Blues will finish as the first runner-up for a wild card spot. So they'll be out of the playoffs, like, but they'll be the closest. Yeah, they'll finish ninth, third in the wild card series. Out of out, I think you're going to have. I think you're going to finish behind Edmonton, Colorado, Calgary, and Nashville. And I, and and I think Minnesota falls out of the wild card. So I think sure. your top three in the Central will be Dallas, Winnipeg, Colorado, Vegas, Seattle, L.A., and then it's Edmonton, Minnesota, Calgary, Nashville. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm out on this because once you trade O'Reilly and Tarasenko, they're not going to be – I mean, they haven't been playing and they've been picking up some points, but I don't think they're going to be gaining points and moving up in the standings. I think, in fact, they're probably going to drop more in the standings, get closer to where Vancouver is. So I'm out on this. I, I don't think they leapfrogging, but I don't think they finish as the first team that's out. Maybe a secondary follow-up because we're all on the same page there. In or out, the Blues will pick in the – or will have a top 10 draft pick when it comes to the yeah. lottery. So uh, it's hard it, to predict what happens after that, but it, it, going into the lottery, they will be a top 10. Pick. So as it stands right now, they would be 11th mm-hmm. um, in the National Hockey League. I think by the end of the season, Detroit will be better than them. Philly, Philly I'm Philly. I don't know about because Ottawa? no, Ottawa won't. They just lost one of their best players. They're going to be in cell mode. Montreal lost one of their best players. It wouldn't surprise me if Vancouver makes a little bit of a push here now with a new head coach and Rick Tockett. Teams usually get a spark from that. 
So I'll say I'm in on this. They'll be top 10 at the end of the season, which gives them at least a 3% chance of getting that top pick. Yeah, I'm in on this, but I think it's just they're going to be 10th. I think the only team that leapfrogs them is Detroit, because I think Vancouver, they may get a little bit of a resurgence with Tockett back in at the helm there. But once they sell off Horvat and they start selling near the deadline, they're going to fall right back down. The only team that's probably... Probably not selling as Detroit, and I see them to where they'll surpass the Blues. So I'll say they finish like 10th. I could see Detroit buying at the deadline. Yeah, being aggressive because they're yeah. getting ready to enter their window. I could see them go after a guy like Bo Horvat, trade piece or off O'Reilly. of their team. Yeah, like I'm not saying they're going to be the team that does it for O'Reilly, but it I makes sense. See. They're the makeshift Blues. Yeah, they already got five of them. Why not add six? Just going to keep simulating this lottery. Eventually, the Blues. Oh, are it'll get the there. Number one overall. Pick. I did it the other day, and it was the third time they were first overall. They they jumped uh, jumped ten places. Only moved down so far. I've gone down to the 12th. <laughs> oh, well, you're just not doing it right. The BKO's alive. Oh, I just got the second pick. All right. Let's go. There we go. Woo-hoo-hoo! Yeah. Who got uh, the first one? Because they'll be dumb enough not to take Bedard. I don't know. I, I what do you mean it. you don't know? I you said it. Oh, my God. I said it. Stupid. I screwed up. Stupid. Um, I, I'm in. I think that they will definitely get a top 10 um, spot in the lottery system. I think that I'm with you guys. I think Detroit will eventually jump, jump them as a better. Uh, draft pick. Somebody else says you guys are back on the suck hard for Bedard train. I, the problem is they they're not bad enough really to to get yeah. Columbus and Anaheim. Uh, they're they're awful. Anaheim's a minus eighty six goal differential this season. Yeah, so those, uh, Anaheim's going to be uh, shooting for it. Yeah, those teams are just so awful well, that it's going to be really. And hard if you look at the teams behind them, as I mentioned, Montreal and Ottawa both lost impactful players. Vancouver's going to be selling off pieces. San Jose is going to be selling off pieces. Uh, Arizona's not doing much. Chicago's selling off pieces. Anaheim's going to sell one of their best players in Klingberg. So, yeah, all of these teams are going to continue to get worse. Uh, all right, final thing here. In or out, guys, the Buffalo Bills missed their opportunity to be able to win a Super Bowl. And now we will see Josh Allen go down as the next Dan Marino. I'm going to say I'm out on this because I still think Josh Allen and that team have the capabilities of winning a Super Bowl. I I just, as bad as they looked over the weekend, I wonder how much of a difference Von Miller would have made for that team because defensively they just looked awful. Um, I'm not out on Josh Allen getting a Super Bowl because I think the talent is still there and that roster is really good. So I'm out on this. I think I'm out on this as well because I, I do think Von Miller would have helped yesterday. The other thing for me is, like, we've seen Josh Allen when he's playing at his best. If he can do that for just a four-game stretch, they could go on a run and win a Super Bowl. Like, it wouldn't shock me at all if we look yeah, back on the, it. What's the quote if my aunt had, you know what, she'd be my uncle? Like, that's Josh you Allen. You can say, man. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's different than that quote, but uh, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I don't think he knows the quote. I, I, I still think Josh Allen. I mean, last year, I mean, they were right there with it with the Kansas City Chiefs. If Josh Allen plays like that just for the final four playoff games, then, yeah, the Buffalo Bills can win a Super Bowl. He's got that capability. It's not like I'm talking about Dak Prescott who can't do that. I mean, it kind of is. I mean, it's Josh not Dak Prescott can't do that. I've seen Josh Allen play at a much higher level than Dak Prescott. I've also seen Josh Allen for the vast majority of this season and almost every single playoff game he's ever been a part of throwing the ball to the other team like he's he's erratic he tries to do too much he is a guy who is going to make unbelievable plays and then on the very he's the type of player that will make a throw that you say you can't believe he made that throw and then he'll say and he'll have the very next play why would you make that throw like that that's who josh allen is as a player and i don't think you can coach that out of him and i don't think you want to honestly because that's what makes him special so I is he never going to get to a Super Bowl? I think that's 
it's so hard to predict that because maybe one year they're like Mahomes gets hurt, right? And the Bengals, whenever they have to pay Joe Burrow, they don't have the same skill sets around him. And then suddenly the Bills find their year. That's very much in play. But I think it's pretty clear right now that the Bills are in the third best situation out of the AFC contenders at best. Like I would take the situation in Kansas City over Buffalo. I would take the situation in Cincinnati over Buffalo. And I do think that his skill set is a big part of why. Still think they're the third best team in the AFC, which you always got a shot in that circumstance. That's right. I agree with that. I also wonder how injured Josh Allen is after everything we saw this season. Maybe. I, I didn't feel like that was I why, didn't either, but maybe. But it, uh, it, it always has some, some type issues of play going in into next year. Right now, they're $9 million over the cap going into next season. And it's the first time that he's had a real cap hit. This year, Josh Allen accounted for $16 million against the cap. You know what he's at next year? Is it like 30, 30 40? 40. Ooh. The year after that, 41. The year after that, 52. Well, the good news is Buffalo's not Kansas City, and they're not cheap, so they'll find a way to push I through. I hear you. It, it gets a lot harder. It gets a lot harder to build when your quarterback starts making this kind of money. It's it's why the Chiefs had to make the difficult decision with Tyreek Hill. They're going to have to start making theirs here pretty soon. I don't know what that means. I don't know who they're going to have to remove from the equation. Probably but Diggs. Probably Diggs after uh, they also, his I, shenanigans last night. He, they can't get rid of him. That's the thing. I, I That was my bold prediction coming off of the day. Then I looked at his contract. It's like, oh, they can't move him. He's, he's stuck. Um, Shouldn't have left the locker room so quick. Look up the Bills' recent draft history. They have missed on a lot of draft picks over the last couple of years. And I think that, that has started to show up in a big way as well. When you miss on draft picks over the couple of seasons, it hurts you. And you see it come up in, in games like that. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next... I think the Pablo Lopez trade made me reevaluate one of the Cardinals and his value, not just to this team, but across Major League Baseball. I'll tell you who that is coming up next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That is what it sounded like on Bally Sports Midwest. I want to talk about the player that made that play. That is Brendan Donovan alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on a 101 ESPN. Guys, I want to talk about Brendan Donovan for a very specific reason. We had a lot of conversations about Pablo Lopez and whether or not we would take him here in St. Louis if he was the missing piece for this rotation. Would I have taken him in St. Louis? My answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. He would have helped the Cardinals. Was he the missing piece, though? I think my answer was no to that. I I think that I was a little lower on Pablo in terms of, like, is he an ace? I think he's a really solid number two or three. He is from the right side what Jordan Montgomery is from the left side. I think that's kind of how I would evaluate him as a pitcher. Like having him, not sure he's the ace that the Cardinals are looking for. But he was traded on Friday, so it doesn't really matter if we think that he would have been the guy here in St. Louis. He was traded along with a pretty significant prospect, actually, to the Minnesota Twins in return for Luis Arise. The reason why the uh, Miami Marlins were targeting Arise is because they needed a left-handed hitting leadoff hitter. They really wanted that at the top of their order. In fact, Skip Schumacher was on MLB Network Radio over the weekend saying, hey, this is 
the exact type of player that we were looking for. We needed somebody that could go up and be the the, the guy that kind of sets the table for our middle over the order bats. Let's start with this. If the Cardinals had called, or excuse me, if the Marlins had called the Cardinals and said, hey, we will trade you Pablo Lopez straight up one for one for Brendan Donovan, who is a very similar player in terms of the batted ball profile to Luis Arise. Now, doesn't have the same average, but gets on base actually at a slightly better clip than Arise does and has more club control as well. What would your response have been to that, Alex? Because they, they profile very similarly. Donovan could have been for the Marlins what Arise is going to be. It would have been no. And I, I think it would have been a quick no. I don't know if I would have considered it because I'm just under the belief that I don't... Pablo Lopez doesn't make you a better team than what you are right now if you pluck Brendan Donovan off of this roster because you've got the pitching to go on a run this season. Now, if an injury pops up, then yeah, my decision's going to change. But as it stands right now, Pablo Lopez is Jordan Montgomery, and I'm fine with that. If I take Brendan Donovan out of my lineup, now I'm relying on Nolan Gorman to be an everyday second baseman for me, or I'm relying on Paul DeYoung to be an impactful bat this season, or I'm looking towards more guys who have less experience from a full season as a major leaguer that Brendan Donovan provided, and he makes your defense better for how versatile he is. Your team, I your team took a step back if you lose Brendan Donovan for Pablo Lopez. So I wouldn't have done it. And it would have been a quick, quick answer. Yeah. I don't think I would have done it either. I think Pablo Lopez would have made your pitching side of things better, but to your point, I I think offensively and defensively, you might've taken a bit of a step back if you take out Brendan Donovan, because Donovan is going to be, in my opinion, probably the leadoff hitter for the St. Louis Cardinals come potentially opening day where he's hitting first. And maybe they decide to go Goldschmidt, Arnato, Contreras, two, three, four, rather than three, four, five. And, And unlike, some of the guys that are have been leadoff hitters in the past, like uh, Tommy Emmon, who's been in that leadoff spot before, his on-base is more reliant on his batting average because he doesn't take a lot of walks. Donovan's not that way. Donovan's on-base percentage not just relies on him getting hits, but also him, he's willing to take pitches and take walks. He had 60 walks last season and only 70 strikeouts. So I see him as being a guy that can be a great table setter for Goldie Arnado Contreras, and I like that in your lineup. And he can be, play second base for you every day until Nolan Gorman shows signs of, one, he's improved defensively without the shifts, and two, he swings the bat if he gets hot. Then potentially what you could do is you could have Donovan be your DH every day, or you can even, if the out field struggles and Lars Newpar's not hitting and Walker's not ready and Burleson's not ready, you can plug and play Brendan Donovan in the outfield and that Swiss Army knife that he provides as being a super utility guy. So, no, I would not have done it. I would not have dealt Brendan Donovan for Pablo Lopez, even though I've been high on Pablo Lopez since opening day of last year. Brendan Donovan is what people want Tommy Edmond to be. Like, he actually is that player. He hits left-handed. He hits for a really high average. He never strikes out. He walks a ton, and because of all of those things and the defensive versatility of being able to play quite literally anywhere in the infield and can play in either corner outfield spot and has a good enough bat to be able to fill in at DH, that makes him one of the most valuable players, position player-wise, on this roster. Like, I'm not trading Paul Goldschmidt. I'm not trading Nolan Arenado. I'm not trading Wilson Contreras. And I think next up on that list, at least in terms of last year's 26-man roster, I think next up would probably be Brendan Donovan for me. I can't trade that guy. He's 26 years old. He's under club control through the year 2028 when he will be 31. He's super cheap for the next three to four years at a minimum. 
And if you look at how he was compared to Luis Arise last year, like the underlying numbers are remarkably similar. And so if he ends up, if I'm saying the trajectory of his career is what Arise has become, man, that's only going to become a more valuable player in the coming years when left-handed hitters are more and more at a premium. Every year we're talking about, hey, where do you find the next lefty? Well, you have him. You have him on your roster now. No, he doesn't hit for a ton of power, and I don't need him to. I don't need the guy at the top of my order to go hit for power. Guys, how many times have we talked about, well, the Cardinals need that leadoff hitter. The Cardinals need somebody that can set the table for the rest of the order. They tried Matt Carpenter up there. He was very good at the top of the order, but then they moved him to the middle of the order, and he wasn't quite as good there. And like, They've been looking for this guy since they signed Dexter Fowler. Well, now you have him. Don't trade that. Don't trade that for a number two or three starter at best. I, I wouldn't have done it. If they had called, and I'm guessing this was probably the ask, it was either him or Lars Newtbar would be my assumption. And the Cardinals said, no, we're not We're not going to be willing to do that. And honestly, good for them. I wouldn't have done it either. And to that point, it's not that you didn't need a number two. And that's what Pablo Lopez is. Mm-hmm. You have plenty of those guys. Alex, you've mentioned this before. Two of them. It's more of a want than it would be a need. So there was no need to go out and get this guy. If he, if he, if someone with an ace was available and you said, okay, you can go get, I'll throw Shane Bieber's name in the I conversation. I would have pulled the trigger here. on that. And then you said, Shane Bieber, Brendan Donovan, a package centered around Brendan Donovan. Sure. It wouldn't be one for one. I'd say, okay, yeah, sure. I can listen to that argument because then you are getting what you need yep. is an ace. You potentially have a guy on the roster that's an ace, but there's a lot of question marks around him. You've got two guys that can be number twos for you in Montgomery and Michaelis, so there was no need to go get him and give up a valuable asset in Brendan Donovan. That's the significant difference there. If I'm getting a legit ace who I know is, one, making me a better team this season, but I can find a way to keep him in Can I say something that might sound really silly right now? Are you about to say like an ace and a two is like not that big a difference? Pablo no, Lopez no, no, and Shane no, 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 Bieber no. are the what, same what player? What I'm trying to think of is like if you're looking at how it offsets, right? Like if you got Shane Bieber and added him to this team, but you're removing Brendan Donovan from the equation. I'm not saying that Brendan Donovan is a better player than Shane Bieber. I'm not. But the replacement for Donovan is who? Nolan Gorman probably yeah, playing yeah, every but day. But I'll figure second. that out for Shane Bieber. No, I, I hear you. But what I'm saying is at this point in the offseason, if we just went through this exercise, thought exercise, Who's your replacement at second? Is it probably, Norman's probably your everyday second base? Until it becomes a liability, then I'm probably playing Paul DeYoung. I'm not even sure DeYoung's gonna be on the roster come opening day. But like, think, think of. Let's think this through for a second. Okay, so we've got Gorman, and if it if it doesn't work out, if he has to go back down to the minors because he's got the swing and miss issue with the fastball up in the zone again. I think you push your way through that if that's the case. If he's got a, I, I don't think he goes back to the minors in this in this situation. If Lars Newbar doesn't hit the way that we're expecting now, let's continue down this thought experiment. Who's batting leadoff for you? Tommy Edmond. Well, I know who I'd hit he, he, do, he doesn't get on base, though, at a very high clip. I say, and it, and it certainly against right-handed Edmund. pitching. Yeah, but to, to sit here and say we're certain that Brendan Donovan's going to be this player, it's his second season in the majors. Like I'm, I've got a pretty high level of confidence that Donovan's, at a minimum, going to be a, a really good leadoff his hitter. Batter, his batter eye is what makes me confident that he's going to be a solid leadoff hitter. Um I, I, my answer would probably be it would probably be Tommy Edmond, or they might they might experiment with like Carlson up at the top potentially. There's just a lot of else. uncertainty here with, with my lineup, which is yeah, right now the strength of my team. I I love my defense and I love my lineup. My position player side of things is really good right now, and so the reason why I say like I'm not even sure, and I know how crazy this sounds. I do. I understand it that I wouldn't do a deal around Donovan for even like the that that number one starter, I think I would be looking more towards, okay, 
I'm not willing to include Donovan, but maybe that means that I've got to give up a little bit more in prospects capital for one of those guys that you're talking about. I'd be willing to do that, but I'm not moving on from a guy that I think is like a core piece of a championship contending team. Does that make sense? If I was in a different part of my life cycle as an organization right now, I would totally be willing to move on for Donovan for a, a, a number one starter because I think the starter has more value long-term for your roster. But where the Cardinals are at right now, the way that they're constructed, I think Donovan actually has a little bit more value right now than one of those other starters does that comes in and leads my rotation right. for the next year. The other thing that comes into context here is like, the control that I have over a Shane Bieber is just one more year after this season. Yeah, I understand it when you're looking at it in terms of the control there where you've got Donovan long-term. I, I think my one counterpoint to kind of just push back on it, and I'm not disagreeing with you, is that how many like legit aces are there? There's not a lot. There, there's sure. not a lot. And if you can get one and it costs me a guy in Brendan Donovan that's a everyday solid leadoff hitter, you can kind of try and develop those guys or you can go find them on the market that can be a leadoff hitter. It's hard to go find a legit ace. There's Maybe only what they do is they go them. sign Jose Iglesias. Yeah, say, Iglesias hey, Jose Iglesias, you're going to play second base for us this year. Uh, you, you're, able to, you're able to offset that loss if you get a legit ace because it's what we've talked about all offseason. The one thing this team is missing is that one-two punch to start in a playoffs, and now you have it, considering if it would have been Pablo Lopez, I still don't think you have that. You know what? Maybe maybe what I'm doing here is like I'm thinking too much about the regular season and not enough about the playoffs. And in the regular season, I think there's a case to be made that maybe Donovan has more impact on your roster oh, absolutely, than, than he's whoever that more. starter is. But once you get to that postseason – a guy like Shane Bieber might be more important to the Cardinals' postseason success than Brendan Donovan. Because is. you're relying on those big bats in the postseason to come through. We say it all the time. Right. If you don't have Goldschmidt and Arenado hitting, and now Contreras, you're not winning no and, matter what. And it's not so much table setting in the postseason; it's more of slug, baby, slug. Yeah. Can you? And Donovan can you doesn't really contribute mistakes? in that yeah. way. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I would understand the arguments from both sides because Donovan's such a great table setter. I think if he ends up being what we saw this past year, to where you're talking about a guy that let's be honest, could potentially be an all-star maybe with his high average, good on base percentage. He's going to be scoring a ton of runs with the guys behind him. But I just think it comes down to there's not that many aces in Major League Baseball that you can legitimately get. And I saw people text in to say, well, go get Darvish or go get Nola in the free agent market. Okay, but are the Cardinals really going to do that? Because... It's easy for us to say, well, just go sign a free agent ace. Well, they've been, they've as we've talked about, their model's going to be tested next year. And if they're unwilling to do that, it comes down to, can we trade for a guy? Yeah, let's go get one of the, like, 10 to 15 aces that there are in baseball. We've got a few texts that are coming in, which is essentially uh, something to the effect of, you guys are way too high on Brendan Donovan. We only saw this for one year. How can you assume that Brendan Donovan is going to be the same player that he was last year? Because there's certain pro- pro- profiles of hitters that I feel very confident projecting. And Brendan Donovan is that. Brendan Donovan is the type of guy where, like, even if the average falls back this year, even if instead of being a 280 hitter and he doesn't go to the Luis Arise route, maybe he becomes like a 260 hitter, he's still going to get on base like 36% of the time. And when you have a player like that, the floor is just so incredibly high for who he's going to be that I, I'm very confident that at a minimum, Donovan is going to be a good player to, for the Cardinals next year. I don't know, like the ceiling on Donovan, very much in question. I have no idea what that looks like. Could be really high, but I, I don't know what the power profile is there. I don't know if he's going to get any better. He's a late bloomer, so the chances are probably not. But that on-base percentage is very real. Somebody on the text line said, BK is ready to get Brendan Donovan a 10-year, $100 million contract based on what he did last year. I'm not I'm not doing anything with this contract. 
You've got him under club control for the next three years. You've got him uh, signed up through arbitration through the year 2028. I'm not touching that deal. I don't need yeah. to. Three years from now, we can talk. But right now, there's no reason to touch that contract. Yeah. He's one of the best values in baseball right and now. And because of what you said, where he's probably not going to develop that power, he's probably not going to outprice himself to the point of where, because exactly. on-base guys don't get the big kind of contracts. Like Jose Iglesias, who you just mentioned, he might be a guy that like projects what Donovan could be, where he's going to be a 280, 300 hitter, and he's going to get on-base a decent amount. Iglesias isn't getting a massive contract this offseason. That's not just because he's older. It's because teams don't value that. Teams value the guys that hit the home runs because they're sexy. So he's never going to outperform to where it's like, oh, man, we got to lock him up before he outperforms us and we can't pay for him. No, yeah, Cody Bellinger is always going to get a bigger deal than Jose Iglesias, yeah. even though the likelihood is Jose Iglesias is probably going to be a better player for somebody next year than Cody Bellinger is, which is crazy to say, but I, I think pretty true. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, what is at stake this weekend when Burrow and Mahomes face off? Oh boy, I am already getting sick of some of the conversations that are taking place. We'll do that coming up in about 10 minutes or so. The Juncture is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trust wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Outside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPNR. Off-air conversations include Jordan Alvarez, good at baseball. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so. No, no, he's a stud. What does Sunday mean for Burrow and Mahomes? Is there actually anything at stake here? We'll get into that coming up in about 10 minutes or so, but Alex Ferrario has a junk drawer story for us. Yeah, I got a list, boys, courtesy of the ranker. Uh, How much are both of you into television shows? A lot. I I have a lot of time on my hands. I'm a big TV head. Big big TV head. That's funny because you have a petite head. head. Damn it, you got to it before me. Shoot. Okay, well, I got a list. Top 15, and they're two separate categories. Okay. Funniest television character of all time. Ooh. Greatest TV character of all time. Ooh. So I'll, pick your let's, own poison uh, let's here, start boys. With greatest let's do characters. greatest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm do assuming you, the soprano, I don't remember what his name is in the movie, the main character. Tony. Tony, thank you. I can't remember. <laughs> Just watch the damn show, man. Sorry, I couldn't get into it. Watch but I'm the saying damn he's show. on that list. Uh, he is. He is in Omar from The Wire's got to be on that list. Tony Soprano, by the I've way, number five. Omar is not on this list. Uh, oh, that's a bad list. <laughs> what's his I'm drawing a blank well, on his was, name, too. Well, it was voted by you, the fans. Walter White. Walter yes, White that was is the name I was number of. one of Breaking Bad. Oh, wow. I'm surprised he got number one. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, you said number five was, was Tony Soprano. One of I, I bet look you up because he's doing this, Michael from The Office. Oh, Michael Scott from The Office, <laughs> number two, ladies oh, and gentlemen. I would have thought he would have been on like the funniest characters of all time, but I could see where it's well, up Well, you here. can be on both, can't you? Uh, Barney from Babe. How I Met Your Mother. Barney Stinson is not on the greatest okay. TV characters of all time purple list. Purple Dinosaur. Nope, different Barney. Is he on the list? Nope. Is there any, did you watch Game of Thrones? Is there anybody oh, yeah. from that that would be um, on this list? Yeah, probably. Um, trying to think of his name. All right, thanks, buddy. Kit Harrington's character, but I'm drawing a blank. John Snow? Nope. Oh, really? Nope. Is there anybody oh, from uh, Tyrion? There is somebody from uh, Tyrion. Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion Lannister. Yep, he is number three on this okay. list. So he you're looking for one more show. in the top five, and then I'll give you the rest of them. Okay. What era? Uh, it's uh, around the same era of, of uh, Breaking Bad. Don Draper? Nope. Nope. Not, uh, he's not on this bad. list, actually. Okay. Homer? Homer Simpson? No, not Homer. 
Homer Simpson. Not on this list. Uh, that's a little different era than uh, Breaking Bad there, buddy. Eh, it's still on. Great Homer Simpson. Though. Homer Simpson's not on this list, which that's surprising. I know this list is bad then. Same era as Breaking Bad. It's a show that was on AMC around the same time as Breaking oh, Bad. Uh, is it, oh, like is this the Rick Walking Grimes? Dead? Nope. Nope. Rick Grimes on, on the list. list? No, it's Better Call Saul. Saul Goodman. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, so, so this he, is... He was also on Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Oh, was he? I didn't yeah. I've never seen Breaking <laughs> Bad, so yeah. I didn't know. Uh, so the rest of this that list, Dwight Schrute is sixth, Tom and Jerry seventh, Joey Tribbiani eighth, uh, Jesse Pinkman ninth, Chandler Bing tenth, Scooby-Doo is eleventh, should be higher. Mr. Rogers, twelve. Three people in the top nine from Breaking Bad. That seems aggressive. Doctor House, Sherlock Holmes, show. and House is a great show. Underrated Joker. show. Joker is fifteenth of greatest television characters of all time. All right, now funniest TV characters I, I, of all time. Well, Tom, Tom and Jerry's got to be up there for the made that freaking list. They're not that good. That's pretty legendary I, for how long. I would they've assume been on. Seinfeld's going to be well represented. So top on five this. funniest yeah, TV Jerry characters Seinfeld. of all time. Jerry Seinfeld is not on this list. What's, this list is crap. And I'm telling you, this is voted by people who watch that don't television. Watch television. Yeah. He's not on this list. Um, Ross Geller, would he be up on this list? Nope. Is there anybody from Friends There's on that list? There's two people from Friends on this list. Man. Well, Chandler, Chandler Bing. Chandler's yeah. number two. Joey. Joey's number three. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, trying to think. What else? Char- is, there, uh, is there anything from Family or what is it? Family, family guy? guy? Family Guy, yeah, but it's uh, tenth on this list. Peter? Stewie, Peter? Nope, Stewie. Stewie's oh, on this list, tenth. So you're looking for one, three, is or one, any, four, and five. Anybody from Two and a Half Men on this list that had a decent following? Uh, no, I do not see any of that. Oh, that's kind of shocking. Is there anybody from like Frasier, Seinfeld? Mm-hmm. No, nope. really? No, nope. but there are sit. They are um, sitcoms. Cheers, Mash. You, you, you mentioned funny. you mentioned one of them. Comedy. Mash was not funny. No, wasn't your Chris Kerber. You guys don't get sixty. <laughs> you totally watched Mash. <laughs> so this, there's two of them from The Office. Oh, Michael. Michael Scott is number one. And then I would assume Dwight. Dwight's number four. And the then office. you mentioned the one that's number five on this list. From The Office? No, from uh, another TV show on the greatest characters. He wasn't on the list that you mentioned. Oh shoot. I don't remember who you Barney said. Stinson. Oh, Barney Stinson. Okay. So the rest oh. of this list, Ron Swanson, Will Smith, I, I'm assuming from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sure, yeah, Will. I'm assuming, uh, Red Foreman, who's that 70s show, I think. Okay. Phoebe, Stewie, as I mentioned. Bugs Bunny's on this list. What's up, Doc? Bender from Futurama, Wiley Coyote, Daffy Duck, and Eric Cartman rounded yeah, out the top list, 15. That, that's a crappy list. It's voted by 900,000 people Wiley on Ranker. Doesn't, he doesn't say anything. It yeah, but out. he's pretty funny for the way that he tries to uh, get at uh, Roadrunner. Road What's the best show you've watched recently? Um, <laughs> well, right now, I'm, I'm engulfed in the show you on Netflix. He, uh, Alex won't <laughs> talk about anything else. If My wife and I you? are like binging it right now. We're about to finish the last season and then they got one coming out in February. So you know what you do when your wife's pregnant? You watch a lot of TV. Amen um, to that. I didn't know that. You know what you do when your wife's not pregnant? You watch a lot of television. <laughs> when you have kids? When you got kids? Kid the only thing is you can only watch one episode a night because you fall asleep. We watched uh, a show called The Bear on Friday night, oh, yeah. it's on Hulu. Uh-huh. It's about a chef. Cocaine Bear? Yeah, that's the uh, no, that's the Chicago not. Chef, isn't it? So good. They got another season coming out of that. That's on yeah. my list. It's coming out, I think, this summer. Um, if you have not seen The Bear and you're into like chef shows, it's got a lot of anxiety in it. So, so does you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I um, love it. It is it is very 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 good. It is it's well like, worth. I your just time. finished Slow Horses, which is kind of like a spy thriller. 
Oh, never even heard of that. Sounded like something on, on HBO TV, late at night. And I just started Succession. Really good. Oh, that one's I'm excellent. In. I'm hooked. Oh, can't wait for the next season of that. I also just watched the Dateline episode of the, these Idaho murders. <laughs> oh, boy. Of course. There's a lot going on there. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. We finally saw what it looks like when the Blues have bad goaltending. Uh, did, did not go well. Can confirm that one did not go well for them on Saturday night. We'll talk about it coming up at 1.15. But next... What's that stake for Mahomes and Burrow on Sunday? Is there anything meaningful here? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Patrick Mahomes, best player. He's the most talented player in the NFL, and he's the most dynamic weapon. Joe Burrow's the best quarterback in football. When it comes to quarterbacking, when it comes to understanding play calls, when it comes to understanding what you have to do with the football, when it comes to understanding what the defense is, when it comes to understanding pocket manipulation, uh, Joe Burrow's the best. Mm. He's the standard right now. I can't tell you how happy I am that I'm not going to be here this week to listen to the rest. Like, if this is Monday, if this is the analysis on Monday on. morning leading into Chiefs versus Bengals, I do not want to hear what it's going to sound we, like by the time we get to Friday. You wait to hear what JR says tomorrow. About. <laughs> yeah. Can we break down, like, what he just said there? Because it doesn't make any sense. That was Dan Orlovsky on Get Up earlier today, audio courtesy of ESPN. I think you're going to hear a lot of this this upcoming week, Alex, where people are trying to convince themselves that Joe Burrow is better right now than Patrick Mahomes. And I will say, and you guys know, I'm the biggest Patrick Mahomes homer in the world. I will defend the man until the death of me because I I think he's going to go down as the second greatest quarterback to ever play the sport behind only Tom Brady. Brady is the GOAT. It's unquestioned. There is nothing that anybody can do, realistically speaking, in my mind, to be able to unseat him. I thought you were going to say Brock Purdy. Patrick Mahomes is amazing, though. And to me, right now, he's the best quarterback in the league. And I think on Saturday when he was hurt, you saw, like, it's not just what Dan Orlovsky was saying there about his ability to create or any. No, what's what's really impressed me about Mahomes this year specifically is he's efficient. The quick game is working for him now. He is doing all of the things that I wasn't sure he would ever be able to do, honestly, where it's like. Hey, is he reading defenses very well? Is he able to get you into the right protections? Is he able to show you one thing pre-snap and then do another post-snap? All of that stuff, Mahomes can now do it. And for us to try to convince ourselves that Burrow is, quote, better at quarterbacking than Mahomes, I mean, if you believe that Burrow is better, just say it. Just say it. There's a case. I don't believe it, but... Joe Burrow right now is the only quarterback in the NFL that's on Patrick Mahomes' level. The only one. Nobody else is up there. We've been trying to convince ourselves for three years. Hey, Justin Herbert can get there. Josh Allen can get there. Maybe Trevor Lawrence is going to be that guy. Maybe somebody's going to get there from the NFC. No. Matthew Stafford. There's one guy that has reached the level of Patrick Mahomes. There are two tier one quarterbacks right now. It's Mahomes and it's Joe Burrow. And we get to watch them head to head on Sunday. And what I, what I hate about these kinds of matchups, Alex, we did it with Manning versus Brady. We're going to do it again. I can already feel it coming with Mahomes versus Burrow is it becomes pitted of which one of these guys is better as opposed to, man, let's celebrate the fact that we're watching two all-time great quarterbacks right now at the peak of their powers early on in their careers with great coaches and great players around them going head-to-head in the AFC Championship game. That's special, man. We don't get this very often, so let's let's celebrate the fact that we get to watch this as opposed to, 
like trying to tear tear down one or the other to build up the other argument of the other guy. Yeah, it's just what happens when you get two great guys going head to head. I mean, it's what people still do to this day in the NBA with uh, LeBron and Michael Jordan. You just go back and forth with it. I'm with you. Like, just enjoy something like this because it's rare that you get the back and forth com- competition, especially when they're in the same conference. Even more so that they're in the same division. I, I, a lot of the conversation around Joe Burrow after this weekend has gotten to this point because his offensive line was so depleted. And you found a way to overcome that. So that's why we've gotten to the point where it's, oh, Joe Burrow is better than Patrick Mahomes because look at what he just did. You're going to get this narrative no matter what. Whomever comes out on top after this weekend's championship game, it's going to be, well, he has now taken over the best quarterback in the NFL from Patrick Mahomes. Does the Mahomes. injury for Mahomes change that at all in your mind? I, I think it does. It for, has to. I think it does for Burrow. I, I think if Burrow beats Mahomes, though he will be 4-0 in his career against him, I do think you should be a little cautious of jumping the gun and saying, oh, Burrow's now the... Now Burrow is the guy of the NFL. He's the face of the NFL. He's going to be the number one quarterback moving forward because Mahomes is going to be limited because of his mobility, which helps make him special. Not taking anything away from him now. He's not going to be able to scramble. But I, I think if Mahomes wins, though, I do think the conversation shifts because it's, hey, Mahomes was injured. He wasn't 100%, and now he's able to kind of get that monkey off his bat of beating Joe Burrow. I still won't go that far because I I think they're going to be neck and neck the whole way to where, like, by the time their careers are over, we're going to look back on it. Someone's going to have the saying, someone's going to have kind of like we'd look at it now to your point of, oh, well, Tom Brady was always better than Manning. Well, Manning won the head-to-heads. Yeah. I think we're going to have some sort of narrative, whether it be Mahomes is the better one or Burrow is the better one, but we're going to look at the records by the time they're done and go, oh, wow, they only won by one game. They were one game better or two games better. People are going to use it to say that Patrick Mahomes is one-dimensional, where his mobility is the reason he's so great, and if you lose that, he's not. And look at Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow can do it in multiple ways. It's the same conversations we had when Patrick Mahomes came onto the scene and said, oh, well, Tom Brady's only a one-way quarterback, and now Patrick Mahomes has got the mobility. You're going to go back and forth with this no matter what. Yeah, the funny thing, you mentioned the Brady versus Manning stuff and in Peyton Manning's career he actually had a winning record head-to-head in the postseason against Tom Brady now overall regular season and playoffs Brady was 11 and 6 against Peyton Manning but in the postseason Manning was 3 and 2 against Brady but that's not what people remember what people remember is Brady got him early and that began the questions of like hey is Peyton Manning a choke artist so you love him in the regular season can he get there in the postseason and Mahomes already has his. He's already got his Super Bowl. Uh, Burrow's already been to a Super Bowl early on in his career. So you're not going to get that choke artist label for either of those guys. I think the one that's at risk of having that right now is Josh Allen, honestly. But when you get into this scenario where in the playoffs, Burrow has Mahomes' number. Hell, in the, in the regular season, Burrow has Mahomes' number. He could potentially go to 4-0 and head-to-head against Patrick Mahomes if he wins this on Sunday. I do think even if we don't agree with it, and I certainly won't, but there will be some that say Burrow just took the lead. Burrow is now the number one guy, and Mahomes has to be able to catch up. You can have all the regular season accomplishments in the world. You can continue winning those MVPs. You can put up those flashy numbers just the way that Peyton Manning did. Once Burrow came into the league, it became Burrow's league, and it was Patrick Mahomes' league. I, Fair I, or not? I'll say, I, I do think that conversation will happen no matter what happens this weekend for one of them, Mahomes or Burrow. I just don't think you can do it for Burrow. I, I don't think you can do it for both. One of Mahomes wins, it's one of four. He's only one in three mm-hmm. against him all time. And if Burrow wins, I can't say he's the guy because even if Mahomes plays great, he's hurt. I, I can't look at it and say, hey, Joe Burrow, he's now the face of football because he beat Patrick Mahomes and he's 4-0 against him. It's a different ballgame if Mahomes is completely healthy. It, it just is. I 
Jacksonville was able to stay in that game because Mahomes was hurt. I, I think Cincinnati's going to be able to win this game because Mahomes is hurt. If Mahomes was healthy, I'd probably lean towards taking Kansas City in this game. But I, I don't think you can jump to conclusions after this weekend's game because Mahomes is dealing with an ankle injury. I think no matter what, the way you get to this conversation with Burrow versus Mahomes is if Burrow wins a Super Bowl this year. Burrow wins a Super Bowl this year, then that's going to change the entire narrative. If he gets and past two, Mahomes, one, one. yeah. If you, if you get past Mahomes and then you choke in the in the post or in the uh, Super Bowl again, well, then we're back to the same conversation that we're having about. Well, yeah, he's still got that threshold to overcome. So I think the biggest opponent in front of him isn't Patrick Mahomes; it's himself. Yeah, and, and that offensive line—that's the other thing. Like, that, are those guys going to be healthy for this next weekend? I don't think so. No, I, I think that they're they're going to be with the same same guys. As and, much as an impressive performance that was for Joe Burrow, that was more impressive for that offensive line. They were amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, they dominated from start to that finish. That should be the narrative the from that game. I do think they were helped, and this is not to take anything away from them, but it, the circumstances with the weather I do think helped them because it's harder to turn the corner on that surface uh, than it would be if they were like on turf or something somewhere else. Um, but regardless, they, they played with the circumstances that were ahead of them, and they beat the hell out of the Buffalo Bills. Did want to bring up one other thing. We were talking about this a little bit before the show today because I was looking back at, you know, we've got a final four. I think we all agree. These are the four best teams from the NFL this season. And this is not always the way that it works out. It's not always the best that are the final four. This year it is, in my opinion. Got the Chiefs, the Bengals, the 49ers, and the Eagles. Scratch the Eagles because I think from day one we saw, okay, this is, the Eagles are on, they're they're ready. Like from day one, they looked like one of the best team in the NFL. It's that Jordan Davis effect. The first six weeks of the season, the Chiefs were four and two. The Bengals were three and three. And the 49ers were three and three. Since then, those three teams are a combined 33 and one when they are not facing one of those other three teams. One of those losses from them came from the 49ers losing to the Chiefs. The Bengals lost or the Chiefs lost to the Bengals earlier this year. But when they're not facing the that, that trio, 33 and one record since week six for those three teams in the NFL this season. Guys, if there's any lesson to be had from three of the four teams that are in the championship weekend, it's this. We got to stop making sweeping generalizations about teams in the first six weeks of the year. The real NFL season now, because of the way that teams treat the preseason, they want to peak at the end of the year. It really starts around October. That's when we really start being able to formulate, okay, what are these teams? Who do they have? What are they going to be by the end of the year? When you get to like early November, we've got a pretty good idea. That's when these teams really showed us who they were. Next year going into the year, let's keep that in the back of our mind as we're watching football early in the season. Yeah. Just because there's, there's not enough, being there, there's probably too much being made, honestly, early in the season. Yeah, like go back and look the Minnesota Vikings start to the season. We were all ready to crown them a Super Bowl contender for how they performed, and then it all showcased itself. I mean, Cincinnati was a team that we were talking at the beginning of the season, like, yep, that was it. That was all they got, that one Super Bowl run, which might have been a fluke, and this is the real team, and they've turned it around. So I'm with you. October starts the actual play. It's the same thing with hockey teams, too, to where you could judge a team all you want in the first two months of the season, but once you hit that all-star break, that's where you find out who the true contenders are compared to the teams that look good in the start of the season. Yeah, and I'm with you because even without the preseason, it's still going to take time in the regular season for these teams they're, they're newly built quote unquote and they're trying to figure out their scheme like look at Kansas City it takes time to figure out what life's like without Tyreek Hill you look at the Cincinnati Bengals it takes time for a new offensive line to gel together you look at uh, the F- Philadelphia Eagles or the San Francisco 49ers excuse me 
they were coming off of the injury to Trey Lance, and they're just now getting Jimmy Garoppolo reasserted back in the lineup. Okay, how's he going to play with the system? we got to figure out, okay, now we're going to be approaching things different because we don't have a mobile quarterback. So it does take time. I agree. About six weeks is when you're going to start to really see teams finally figure things out. And I think part of that is because what you said, the preseason. Teams aren't playing their starters anymore. They're not trying to knock out those kinks in the preseason. They're going to do that once they get to the regular season. And after week six, you're, we've clearly seen it. You've seen the best teams prevail. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're diving into some of the biggest lessons from this past weekend and some of the NFL quick hitters that we've got coming off of the divisional round. I said on Friday, this is my favorite weekend of the NFL season. Uh, it did not give us great games, to say the least. So we'll get into that a little bit further coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, speaking of bad games, the Blues had one on Saturday, specifically from their goalie. Doesn't happen very often. We saw what it looks like when the Blues get bad goaltending. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Over the line, Athanasiu shoots and scores. 4-1 Chicago. Z beats Bennington hard on the blocker's side. And I think we're going to see Thomas Grice at this point, Joe. Yeah, we are. Two of the four goals, nothing you can do about. Fortunately, the Lafferty one sneaks five-hole there in that first period. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That's what it sounded like on Saturday night as the Blues had to pull their goaltender. Alex, we saw for the first time in a while, really, what this team looks like when it is not able to get the goaltending necessary from Jordan Bennington. It's just flat out bad game. Bad game by him. Bad game by the Blues in general, but specifically it was, it was a rough one for Benner. We don't expect that out of him. I wouldn't expect that to happen the next time that he's out there, whether that's tomorrow or on Thursday against Arizona. Uh, that being said, I, I do think that it was a reminder as to the flaws that this team currently has. And I think sometimes Bennington can mask some of those flaws, especially in some of these recent wins that we've seen where Benner just stands on his head for a period. It allows the Blues to be able to gain their form. And then they go and win the game. And when he's not out there doing that, this team looks really bad, specifically at five on five. Yeah, they do. And we've seen both ends of the spectrum. I talked. I told you guys Thursday after that Nashville Predators game, despite us talking about the defense and the flaws that they have, you've got a goaltender who can overcome those flaws. And all you just need is to take the body in front of the net and your goaltender will do the rest. But then on the flip side of that, Jordan Bennington, which is a very uncommon thing for him to not make the saves with odd man rushes or breakaways, wasn't able to do that for you. And it's no coincidence that that second goal went in shorthanded and the heads dipped on that team. Everybody looked at it and said, tonight's not our night. Yep. And it's because Jordan Bennington wasn't making the saves. And I don't blame him for that game at all because he has taken this team on his shoulders all season long. But you did just get a perfect vision of what a team looks like when you don't have above average or elite goaltending. And I say elite goaltending, the numbers don't match that with Bennington, but he's played like that this season. So for St. Louis, you know, you look around the National Hockey League and you see teams that may not have that elite goaltending. Like a perfect example probably would be the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas has continued to kind of flounder this season but they still find ways to fight for the top spot. Why? Because their offense is so good or their defense can overcome the shortcomings of their goaltender. You don't have either of those categories this season for St. Louis, so you have to play near-perfect hockey for your goaltender to be able to steal you points, and these nights are going to happen. The problem is 
if this is a trend, it's going to go the complete wrong direction for St. Louis the rest of the season because if you don't have Bennington, you don't have anything. Yeah, I agree with you there. And and this team gives up too many high-danger opportunities to put themselves in a good spot with without someone playing elite goaltending. Otherwise, you're looking at a lot of games that are going to be five, six goals allowed, like we saw against the Chicago Blackhawks. And at times, there have been times where five-on-five offense, they've been really good. But for a majority of the year, their five-on-five offense hasn't been where where it has been in the past. So they offensively can't outscore their problems all the time when they're giving up five goals like they did against the Chicago Blackhawks. It's just not going to happen. And not a lot of teams are going to. And they don't have the special teams either that they had last year where when they need a big-time goal, they're going to score it. Instead, they go on special teams and give up a goal. So they're not they're not a team that can mask any goaltending problem. It's just not going to be the identity for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, somebody on the text line from the 573 and the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show is 314-399-9646. BK's been waiting for his moment to be able to bash the Blues. This is his segment. He's a hater. You can call this new segment BK's Blues Bashing Bit. First of all, like the the name. No, it's too long long of a name. I'm not bashing the Blues at at all. Um, what, What I do think is worthy of consideration, though, is the Blues aren't good enough right now defensively to be a goal suppression team. They've tried leaning on that with Bennington, but man, eventually we know how this works. If your goalie gets overworked throughout the regular season, they're going to they're gonna crumble by the end. They're, they're going to have nothing left by the time that you get to the postseason. They're also not good enough, though, when it comes to their goal scoring ability, specifically at 5-on-5, five five, to outscore their mistakes defensively. So you, you're kind of stuck in the middle, and we've known this all year long, and it's just been a matter of can they find a way to get good enough, quick enough, to maybe be able to find that piece that you can plug in somewhere to take them to that next level. The answer appears to be no, that they're not going to be good enough, quick enough. But when I look around the NHL, Alex, I went through the top five teams in the league this year so far based on points percentage. It's Boston, Carolina, New Jersey, Toronto, and Dallas. All of those teams, whether you want to call it a clear-cut identity or if you just want to say they're excellent at one specific thing, they all have something they can hang their hat on on every single night. The Boston Bruins this year are number one in the NHL in goals allowed per 60 minutes at 5-on-5. The Dallas Stars are just really good at everything, but they're sixth in goals for and sixth in goals allowed per 60 minutes at 5-on-5. So they're very good at 5-on-5 so far this year. Carolina, we know what their identity is every year. They're going to be a defensive-minded team that scores just enough. Well, this year, second goals allowed per 60 at 5-on-5. Seattle, number one. They're a goal-scoring team. They're a rush team. Number one in goals four per 60 at 5-on-5. New Jersey, no surprise here. Once again, third goals four per 60 minutes at 5-on-5. If you want to get into that upper echelon of the NHL, we've seen this from the Blues. It's no surprise. Of course, you got to be good at something to be a great team. But these teams all picked a lane and they went down that lane. Even if they've got one area of their team that's a problem for them, like giving up too many goals, you can outscore that sometimes. Or not scoring a ton of goals. Well, if you're so great defensively, sometimes it doesn't much matter. You can score three goals per night and you can get away with it because you've got great goaltending and excellent defense. The Blues have neither. And so one of the things that I would like to see from them, Alex, when it comes to their personnel and their decisions at the deadline and then into the offseason is pick a lane. Pick a lane. You can determine now which direction you're going as an organization. Are we going to go the New Jersey, Seattle route? Or are we going to go the Boston, Dallas, Carolina route? Would we rather be a goal suppression team or a goal scoring team? I think at some point they've got to make that determination. It sure seems like based on the contracts they've given out, 
they would prefer to go the Seattle, New Jersey route. We're going to be a goal scoring team. We're going to try to outscore all of the teams that we're going up against. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. But now you got to add the necessary talent to become that. It can't just be Thomas and Kyra on any given night. Shin adding some secondary scoring. You got to go add another scoring punch to this team, and that's that's what really lies ahead for them. Yeah, you can't go the direction of Boston. I, you don't have the, the roster in place to go that direction. I mean, Dallas is the same way. You have the goaltender. I believe you have the goaltender to be a goal suppression team, but you don't have the defense. I mean, Dallas has got Miro Haskinen, Essa Lindell. They've got Ryan Suter. Like, they've got a ton of really good players that are goal suppression players. The same can be said about the Boston Bruins. Charlie McElvoy, they've got Hampus Lindholm, they've got Brandon Carlo, they've got studs on the defensive side, but they also have the mindset on their team to play a two-way style to where if the goals don't come, you know that your goaltender is going to keep you in a hockey game. You don't have that. Your route is the offensive side. Unless you are going to completely overhaul your defense, which is going to take a lot of work in the offseason, you've put your chips in the goal scoring ability. Now you got to go out and find it. And we were talking about this in the office. It might not be that much that difficult of a switch for you, depending on how your off season goes and what you could do on the defensive side to make up for cap situation. But on top of that, also the personnel you feel you've got a really good top six. You've got Buchnevich and Thomas and Cairo and Shen and sod. Now you just got to go find that other guy to play in your top six who makes you that dominant offensive team because I, the depth can help. you got a Chari if you can lock him up. You've got neighbors. Maybe you can bring Barbashev back. You've got Torupchenko. You've got some of these guys who can step in for you, but where's your dominance coming from in your top six? That's where I think you could flip it, but it comes down to are you willing to pay the price? Can you find the right player? And can you overhaul your defense in the offseason? Because if you can't do any of that, welcome to purgatory because you're going to be stuck in it for a couple of years. And that's why I say they probably head towards that offensive side, as you're saying, because it's going to be hard to picture them being able to become a defensive suppression team because they've got six guys that are liable right now on the ice. Like They, they don't have a top four defense that's going to be goal suppressing guys, suppression guys. And it's going to be tough to retool all of that in the offseason. It's easy to see how they can go out and fix kind of the offensive issues in the offseason because you go out, you get that winger for the top six, maybe bring in another guy to add some depth to that third line with neighbors and Achari if you bring them back. It's just easier to see the path forward of, okay, how can we add to our offensive side? Well, we're losing four forwards off a rush. We've got X amount of cap space. We can make trades. We can do this. The defense is hard to do because you got a bunch of long-term contracts. You'd have to trade some of those out, find a way to replace them. That just seems too tough, in my opinion, for the St. Louis Blues to do in one offseason. Over multiple offseasons, sure, maybe they can figure a way out of that, but I don't think they can do it in one. Coming up next, we'll hit the NFL quick hitters coming off of the divisional round here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. NFL quick hitters guys let's start with this how would you rank the four remaining teams and take into account however you want to Mahomes injury but how would you rank the remaining teams that are left in conf- in the conference championship weekend I would go Philly Cincinnati Kansas City San Francisco interesting we have a very different ranking why'd you smile about that of course we did mine's he's, correct he's probably at Casey well, of course he does look at them they're too cheap to be number one so you have San Francisco last yeah on your list mm-hmm See, I would go, I agree with Philly 1, I agree with Cincy 2, 
I think I would actually go San Francisco three just because I think Mahomes being injured is such a difference maker. I would put the Chiefs at four would be my ranking. But the only reason I had them that way is because I think San Francisco against Philly makes them a lesser opponent compared to Kansas City versus Cincinnati. I have the Eagles last. <laughs> oh, really? I, I do. I heard, Did you see Nick Sirianni on the sideline? I, yeah. I Dude's ready to drop both. I know what I'm bleeping doing. <laughs> you know what I'm bleeping doing. I don't remember who it was that said it, but I, I couldn't have agreed more. I think it might have been Tony Romo on the game. Uh, over the weekend, but he said the Philadelphia Eagles scheme is so like indefensible that it's going to be tough for any defense on to stop offense them. or yeah, defense. Offense. Oh, I was about to say their, their defensive scheme is no, no, super simple. That, but I, I think it's going to be tough to stop them. You. I think it's going to be tough to stop them. I, I don't see a team stopping them. I think San Francisco is the exact type of defense that might be able to. I The thing that I worry about for the Eagles, the soft center of their defense is what you can expose. You can get them in the middle of the field. What does Kyle Shanahan want to do? Wants to get the ball in his playmaker's hands and get him into space. Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle. These guys can take advantage of that middle of the field. So I, I'm a little bit worried about them. I, I have Cincinnati as the best team that's remaining in the playoffs. I have the 49ers number two, Chiefs number three, and the Eagles number four. I, I got a lot of flack for this when I tweeted it out last night. I think that the thing we got to remember, all four of these teams are excellent. Like this is not talking about like the Eagles compared to the Vikings and saying that the Vikings are better. All of these teams are really good. And like your guys' rankings, if you want to have the Eagles number one, totally reasonable. I get it. It's why this weekend I think is going to be so much fun to watch because I could listen to the argument for either of these te- any of these teams moving on to the Super Bowl. Totally reasonable. It's why the, the lines right now are one and a half in favor of both of the home teams. These are super close games when you look at uh, who's going to be better. All right. As we continue here, guys, with some NFL quick hitters. Last week, we talked about Daniel Jones. Do you pay him? Do you not? What do you do if you're the Giants are coming off of that huge win against the Vikings? Do we feel a little different today about Daniel Jones coming off of that Uh, game than we did last week? Here's the victory lap, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. Yeah, you feel different about him. He, He looked exposed. But as I said, going into that game, the only reason I was backing the Giants was because of Brian Dable's ability to create a scheme that went against the opposition. And it was very evident that Minnesota's defense was trash and this defense was much better. Understandably so. But yeah, it exposes Daniel Jones a lot. He did not have those playmaking abilities to get first downs like he did against Minnesota. Um, the throws obviously were not as good as it was against the Minnesota Vikings. Some of that might just be the weapons that he had. So, yeah, I, I look at that much differently now. I think if I'm the Giants and I don't have a better option this offseason, I'd franchise tag him, maybe run it back for one more season. But if you got a better option out there, I'm taking it because Daniel Jones could not get it done against a superior defense. Yeah, I mean, I knew this is what Daniel Jones was going into the weekend. I... I didn't expect him to make the big-time plays like he did against Minnesota, and that's just because Minnesota had a bad defense. Like, Daniel Jones, can he be a guy that can beat bad defenses? Sure. Can he beat the good ones? No. So he's like at best a 500 quarterback and can maybe win you around in the playoffs. So I'm not surprised by what we saw from Daniel Jones, and I agree with Alex. If if you don't find a better option, which would be unbelievably hard not to find a better option, in my opinion, than Daniel Jones, then you franchise and bring him back, run it back for one more year. But you don't pay him. Don't pay him this offseason. I, I think I'm moving on. I do. Who's, I, your op- who's your next option, though? Find a quarterback in the draft. Or, but you're, or, you're or picking go back low, to the market. Though. Uh, they've, got a, they've got a higher pick this year. 
Don't they? Am I, wouldn't you I have mistaken? like a 16, 17 pick because you got bounced in the first round? I'm or do they have somebody else's draft pick? I thought they did. I think I'm wrong on this. They, yeah. I don't think any of the top four players are going to drop to you. Yeah. Stroud. I mean, um, they could do what the Chiefs did where they trade up to a top 10 pick to be able to pick your guy. Uh, that's what the Bills did as well. And that's the history for Brian Dable. I want to go back to that Bills team because in 2017, that was the first year with Sean McDermott as their head coach. They finished that year nine and seven with Tyrod Taylor as their starting quarterback. That season in Buffalo, Tyrod Taylor threw 14 touchdowns, four interceptions, led them to a nine and seven uh, record that season. They ended up going to the wild card round. They lost and everybody was like, wow, that was a really good year for the Buffalo Bills. And then they said going into the next season, we've got to find a quarterback because they knew what was happening with Tyrod Taylor was not sustainable. They They couldn't win long term with that. I think that's what the Giants have to come to terms with this offseason. I would not give 25 plus million dollars on a per year basis to Daniel Jones. I would be looking for whoever my next answer is at the quarterback position. And I got to find a way to get that guy. So for me, I, I would not I would not do the long term extension with him. I would let him walk and I would figure it out internally uh, with somebody else probably coming this year in the draft. It's going to be tough. If it's not from the draft, though, I there's nobody that I there's nobody that makes you better. Because Daniel Jones at least has been in the system. But are I, you better off by going a long-term deal with Jones or a franchise tag, $35 million for Jones, or resetting, saying, okay, we're probably not going to be as good this upcoming season. I, I don't know who that replacement-level player is, whoever that guy is, the bridge quarterback. Maybe it's Jimmy Garoppolo, and you pay him $20 million on a one-year deal for Jimmy to recoup his value. Whoever, I, I don't know who the guy is, but somebody that's a bridge quarterback, and then you go into next year figuring out you who the long-term You just got bigger flaws. Is. Your offensive line is that's more of a flaw. You don't have any wide receivers that but are weapons for you. you can use some you. of that money towards those flaws that you're talking about if you don't pay Daniel Jones. Once you pay but Daniel Jones... what's a Jones, franchise tag going to cost? 35 to $37 million. It's the, t- it's the average of the top five highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL. It's yeah. super expensive, yeah. and it's all guaranteed, and it all counts against your cap next year. That's way too much money That's for a Daniel yeah. Jones. That's what I was going to say. Is If you can't trade up in the draft, maybe you do go the bridge quarterback. But the problem, I wouldn't go like Derek Carr is probably going to get, a, I would think, a multi-year deal somewhere. I might be because going Tyrod Taylor the, level. You don't have that roster around him. I know you're saying, well, you could go and spend money on I mean, you're still going to be years away from me feeling comfortable with that roster to put a guy in there on a multi-year deal. And if anything, I'm going to bridge quarterback to your point and drafting a guy whenever I get the chance. In that scenario, I think it makes even more sense than to take a step back. If you guys think that this roster is that far away, I, I think you might even like tank next year to go get Caleb Williams. I know that sounds crazy coming off of what was a really I don't know special if you're able season. to tank though for how good of a coach Brian Dable is. And I mean, their defense actually is. It was good. solid. It was solid. Yeah, they. I mean, they. They played really well this year, but really well for them was like, what, 9-8? and eight? Isn't that what their finish, the final record was for them this year? They were like better that. than 9-8. and eight. No, 9 that equals 17, yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know, man. I, I would not be resigning Daniel equal Jones 17. to a long-term contract. All right, final thing here as we go through Sometimes some NFL quick hitters. <laughs> Guys, Brock Purdy is going to be the fifth quarterback to play on Championship Sunday in his rookie season. Oh, yeah? The previous four. 0-4, four, four touchdowns, nine interceptions in the championship uh, weekend. It was Mark Sanchez, Joe Flacco, Big Ben, and Sean King. There's a throwback for you, T-Bone. Oh. Is it going to go differently <laughs> for Brock Purdy in your mind? Is he going to be the first to be able to do this? Yeah, I would say he could be the first. I still think I would give the edge to Philadelphia, 
But again, this has nothing to do with Brock Purdy and everything to do with how good that team is around him. And I don't know what those teams looked like for the other rookie quarterbacks, but to have a Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, a Christian McCaffrey, and as great as a defense as San Francisco has, and the mind that you've got with Kyle Shanahan, I could see him being the first quarterback to get it done. I think he could be as well. I I agree with Alex. I'm going to pick the Eagles this week. The reason I think that he might be able to do it is, I think the reason you saw that the Dallas Cowboys were able to slow down San Francisco's offense a little bit was because they had guys that can just fly to the football. You look at Van Der Esch very quick in his movement. You look at, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his, Parsons. Parsons able to fly to the football. I, I don't know if the Eagles necessarily have those kind of guys defensively to where they can kind of slow down the speedsters. I think San Francisco's going to be able to make some plays in space. But I just come back to, I, I just don't know if San Francisco will stop the Philadelphia offense. So I'm going to lean towards taking Philadelphia, but I wouldn't be shocked if Brock Purdy is the first guy to do it. I said earlier, I've got the 49ers as the second best team remaining. I think they get it done this week. Say which chess, man. I think that the 49ers are going to win on Sunday. You're crazy. Troll or text. We'll get to the BK and Ferrario rewind on the other side. Troll. From the 314. Oh. Do you guys even watch football? You clearly never played. Natural. Do you think Daniel Jones is not a top 10 quarterback in the NFL? He had no wide receivers to throw to whatsoever and still dragged that team to the playoffs and even won a game. Uh, That's obviously a text for the way that it started. Troller text. I'm going text. Probably a Giants fan. That poor guy. He's continued. He's right. He's right. (laughs) He's right, though. I don't watch any football. If Kyler deserves 50. Daniel Jones is definitely a thirty oh, million dollar might, quarterback. He might, he, he might have a point on that one, if we're being honest. <laughs> if you want to pay Daniel Jones thirty million dollars, my man, you go ahead and do exactly that. I am not going to make. That you don't mistake. know what franchise quarterbacks look like, BK. My team's never had one. We'll hit the rewind next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on One Hundred and One ESPN. Kylie, if you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app, all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. I'm getting out of here. I won't be back until next Monday. You guys can see you me. Take though, those on, awful football opinions with you, BK. On Sunday, I will be back with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson live at Helen Fitzgerald, where you can join members of the 101 ESPN crew to watch Sunday at the Fun Day Championship Bash out of Helen Fitzgerald. You can enjoy tons Nobody of TVs. Calls it that watch anymore. The Rebecca Black. Sunday Fun Day. <laughs> Trans- <laughs> Sunday Fun Day. And a bunch of giveaways throughout the day. I'm not going to miss you guys. The Bash kicks off with a live pregame show that I will be hosting starting. A fun day. Starting at 11 a.m. We hope to see you guys out there. Car Shield, Bud Light, and David Taylor Dodge Jeep Ram in Ellisville making this possible. Alex, you enjoy the rest of the week, man. Can't wait to hear what you guys have in store from 11 to 2. You know what they Tuesday say. Tuesday through Friday. It's a Tuesday fun day here on 101 ESPN. Going to miss you guys. I'll be down in sunny Orlando as it is snowing here in St. Louis. Don't miss you. We're tough. Believe it or not, no, he, he has a BKO on a... 
His flight tomorrow. Oh, my oh, flight's no, going to be gravy. I'm saying it's going to be BKO doesn't work any longer. The playoffs are here. We're going to have to de-ice and then I had a we can't get it going. Weekend. That parlay that I gave you guys was a winner. Two to one. Hope all of you took it. I did. Can we end with this text from the 314? This damn millennial on his vacation three weeks into the year, and he's been out for two of them. Thank you, 314. I'll talk to you guys next Monday. Alex and Tanner have you tomorrow. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.